Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Also on Facebook, look for Political Beats there. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. I believe we're on Amazon Podcasts now as well. And you can go to nationalreview.com. Click on Podcasts in the corner. Find all the fine in our podcast there, including back episodes of this one right here, Political Reviews. Uh, political Beats, not Reviews. Uh, listen and leave reviews, we ask you to, to help others find the show. My name's Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, standing by, waiting for this day, his whole life, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? It's been so lonely, Scott. I've been waiting here for so long. And all this time that's passed me by, well, you know, it hardly seems to matter now. <laughs> we are about to get to it. Uh, at Esoteric CD on Twitter is where to find Jeff. Our guest for today's program is Patrick Fry, blogger since 2003. He says he's still committed to the form, even though it has been dead for years. Find him on <laughs> Twitter, too, at Paterico. It's Patrick Fry. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. This is an honor. And uh, we bring you on before we get to our uh, band introduction. We first like to let you say a little bit about yourself. Uh, Patrick Fry, tell us about you and, and uh, Paterico on Twitter and what you're involved with. Sure. Uh, well, uh, as you said, I've had a, a blog. Um, old timers might know what those are uh, that I've, <laughs> I've had since 2003. Uh, and uh, used to be early on a critic of the LA Times um, and uh, got a little bit of minor internet fame doing that. Um, broke some stories over the years. Uh, I, I was, uh, I think, the first person to break the story about Anthony Weiner talking to underage girls. Uh, it's one of the big ones. Uh, and then uh, something that a, a few people know me for is... Uh, well, I met Andrew Breitbart, and he and I, or his site and, and I both wrote about a uh, convicted domestic terrorist who had set off some bombs in Indiana in the 70s and then had become a lefty political activist. And so uh, that got attention because uh, after a few of us criticized this guy, uh, we ended up getting uh, swatted. Yeah, he lawfared you guys too, yeah. as I recall. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sued, yeah, sued us and everything. So, And if people don't know what swatting is, that's where somebody calls the police and reports a shooting at your home. So I'd answer the door at about 12.30 in the morning, uh, staring at a bunch of cops pointing guns at me. Uh, but uh, So that got some attention, and then I wrote for Red State for a couple of years, uh, maybe uh, like 2016 or so but was uh, fired as part of their effort to clean house to get rid of all the Trump critics. So uh, I'm just uh, kind of whiling away my days in obscurity at this point. But uh, pleased to be with you guys. It gives you time to join podcasts like this. Exactly. So that's the important part. Yeah. We, uh, we welcome Patrick on today for the first part, part one of our two-part series, usually reserved for summers, but uh, doing it, it's a special Halloween double edition, I suppose. Hey, you know what? COVID screwed everything up. We just, <laughs> we know, it's, all, it's all haywire these days, just, just like our American politics, for that matter. It is a two-parter on, uh, on Genesis, as you well know if you've clicked on this program, and as you well know if you've listened to this program previously, uh, Jeff's favorite band. He is ready and waiting to go 
First, though, we turn things over to Patrick once again to tell us uh, why he loves Genesis, especially this era of Genesis. Today, we take the Peter Gabriel era of Genesis. Uh, how you got into them and why people should care about this music from Genesis, Patrick? Yeah, so um, I probably owe my love for Genesis and in particular the Peter Gabriel era uh, to my lifelong friend, Tony Slagle. Um, uh he is the person who first showed me when I was a teenager. Um, and he, he popped into a VCR, look it up, uh, a VCR tape of, uh, Peter, of Peter Gabriel and the band doing the musical box. Uh, you can find this. Uh, it's on YouTube. Yeah. This video on, on YouTube. We'll talk about it later. Uh, but it's the version where he wears the old man head at the end. And, uh, I found that incredibly compelling, and uh, I until probably age fifteen, I really I, I was actually a classical music uh, fan. I really didn't listen to rock music until uh, I would say age fifteen or so. Um, and uh, but kind of my path towards uh, meeting Tony was uh, in part. It started with the this thing called the RCA Music Club. You guys have never heard of this, right? This is too old for you. Well, I assume Columbia it's the same House. as Columbia House. Yeah, right. yeah so like Columbia Every, House. It's all yeah. the same idea, right? You buy you buy you buy six CDs for like a penny, right. and then then they have to buy six more, and they cost eighteen ninety nine, yeah. and that's how they get you. Exactly, and they, and back in those days, at least, they would also they would make you opt out, so you would get right, something right. if you didn't opt out. And I think one of the things that I uh, failed to opt out of was a Rush album. Um, <laughs> and then I, I, I thought, well, I'll go ahead and listen to it, you know, and I loved it and I became a Rush fan. And then, uh, and that, was, that album was called Roll the Bones. Uh, it was not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to think of the worst Rush album. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't <laughs> exactly. be here. Yeah. No, I got the, I got lucky. I think it was like 2112 that I heard first. But, uh, so I actually, uh, became a Rush fan, met, uh, Tony uh, and going to my first Rush concert and uh, he and I were sort of a lot like the uh, the guys from uh, I Love You Man you know that movie um, yeah the, the big Rush fans and kind of music nerds and uh, so he was definitely the one who um, who got me into that but uh, uh, but I, I want to say even though I'm here for the Peter Gabriel uh, version I like the Phil Collins Genesis. And in fact, that's some of the first rock music that I ever listened to. So I got a handheld radio for Christmas in like 1983. And among the songs that were popular at that time, including like Synchronicity 2 from The Police and Modern Love by David Bowie, was a, a tune called Home by the Sea uh, by Genesis, which I really liked. But I, I didn't become fanatical about them until until I discovered Peter Gabriel era Genesis. And I think it, it just sort of appeals to the classical music fan within me because there's so much complexity uh, to the music that you can always come back to it and find something new.
know what, Scott? I could tell stories. I could tell stories all damn day long. I could tell stories like Peter Gabriel trying to cover up for an electrical malfunction on stage during an early Genesis <laughs> show. So maybe you go first, and then yeah, I'll tell that's my a good story. Idea. Because uh, I have a feeling, and it's just a hunch, that I will be the uh, host uh, on this particular episode that you hear the least from. Because <laughs> I know that Patrick is a huge Genesis fan, and this is, uh, this is Jeff's baby. And I, uh, I actually I know the Collins era pretty darn well. One of the first Twitter interactions that I think Jeff and I had was me making the, uh, this sort of throwing it out there that you could make the case that Genesis was the greatest mainstream rock band of the 80s after going back through some of the early 80s Genesis albums. And so that era I know fairly well. And I remember agreeing with you and then saying, well, who's that guy? And then a year later (laughs) we ended up hosting a show. Then you found out. (laughs) Um, But this Peter Gabriel era, uh, this is is really new to me. Uh, A vast, vast portion. The only song that I can guarantee that I knew from this era before stepping in and beginning to, 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 to eat through these albums was uh, the title track from The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, uh, which was, it was played a little bit on the classic rock stations in Chicago. You never heard, you never heard I Know What I Like? I had it? never heard I Know What I Like. Never. Wow. The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is because on one of the Chicago sports radio stations, they had done a parody song to that uh, for the Bears called The Bears Lie Down on Sunday. It was when the Bears <laughs> were 4-12 and 12 or 3-13. and 13. So that's the reason, that's the, that, that's the song I knew from this era. So stepping into it, uh, essentially fresh. So I, I've not clearly internalized a lot of this music the way that both Patrick and Jeff have. But I at least can give the perspective of uh, a Genesis fan. I mean, truly a fan uh, of that Collins era, sort of stepping back through these earlier albums. And uh, clearly, it's excellent music. And uh, I, I had emailed earlier this morning and saying, I'm not sure what my two albums are going to be and the five songs. This is really through the entire this entire era, really consistent music too. Each album has clear highlights. Uh, songs that that really stick with you. Uh, to Patrick's point, you know, it, it is complex. Uh, there's a bit of you know, there's some, there's some classical influence in some of these uh, songs and in, in some of these albums. Clearly, uh, and I think that someone walking in essentially new to this era, this Gabriel era of Genesis, is going to come away with a lot of songs that they like and a new appreciation for how this band 
was constructed. Um, you know, Collins had solo success and Gabriel had solo success and Mike Rutherford had solo success with Mike and the Mechanics. And, and Steve so, Hackett had a really great solo right. career so too. All, I'm all pun out. Yes. All these people had had solos, and Tony Banks made some solo albums too. Not quite as successful, but they're all super talented. They all bring a different edge and uh, a, a, a different perspective to the way the music was written and performed. And so uh, I'm looking forward. I mean, truly, I'm looking forward to hearing Jeff and Patrick talk about Genesis and school me a bit, but also uh, tipping in with some of my observations and and likes. And yes, even uh, a few dislikes here and there, too. I'll be blunt. I'm going to put the slug line right up front. They're my favorite band of all time. And if you follow me on Twitter for long enough, especially if you've been paying attention to what I've been tweeting over the past like four weeks, the minute we booked this show, I just went on a binge of just like here, here's a really great version of throwing it all away. <laughs> hey, you want to hear you want to hear Peter Gabriel kicking the crap out of Supper's Ready in 1973? Here's your take. Like I've just been posting rarities left and right, reliving my childhood. Uh, and of course, that's I guess one of those things that can never be uh, omitted when you think about like the bands that mean the most to you. This is me truly reliving my childhood. They're objectively, I have this list, and if you've listened to the show long enough, you know I've talked about it. Objectively, the five most important and greatest artists ever are like the Beatles, the Who, the Stones, Dylan, the Birds, Velvet Underground, that kind of stuff. But my favorite artists, well, you, you already listened to our Radiohead episode, I hope, so you know that they're they're basically nearly tied. But, and, th- and this has been the case since I was, you know, I, I would say it was be- since I was 18 years old, but the truth is it's actually because it's actually from when I was seven years old. Genesis has been my favorite band of all time. And maybe that's a story that I'll tell on our second half of the episode when we come back. Uh, because like both of you guys, and it's inevitable, I mean, it's just about when we were born, I started with the Phil Collins era Genesis, the first CD I ever bought in my life from a guy who would end up becoming like <laughs> one of these insane music fans was Atacab. And, uh, then I, I sort of left them when I started like getting into like classic rock. I was like, oh, they're so uncool. Phil Collins is so gauche. You know, I, I it's almost like, you know, this is long before, um, you know, uh, American Psycho had been made, but like <laughs> I, I still like felt that vibe. Like, oh, Phil Collins, you can't like that stuff. It was only at the end of my senior year when I, I never let go, never really let go of those deeply embedded memories that I had of Abacab, of uh, the self-titled album, of Invisible Touch, We Can't Dance. I got all of them when they came out. Um, but then I was just like at Beach Week on my senior year, and I uh, decided to go into a store. And it was like one of these like consignment stores where it's like you know remaindered remainder bin to albums. Mm-hmm. And because the new remaster series had come out recently, uh, I just saw a double album version of the The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis, and I known because I'd also liked Peter Gabriel's solo music, but, and this is the thing, this is the thing, because for if you were a kid, I was born in 1980, if you were a kid born in 1980, it was like almost inconceivable to think about the idea that they, that guy was in that group, yeah. and they were making that kind of music. 
I, I I knew that it was true on an intellectual level because you know I can read, but uh, <laughs> it, it didn't make any sense like you know on a, an emotional level on a gut level. So I said screw it, and I went and bought the land lies down at Broadway, and I drove myself home from Ocean City, Maryland to uh, Potomac, <clears throat> listening to that album all you know one hour and forty minutes of it, and I'm not gonna lie, I was thrown for a loop. That is one messed up, effed up, weird ass album. Started with the, the title track, which as Scott mentioned is great, and then everything else about it challenged me. And then suddenly, you would hit a wonderful pop moment where Peter Gabriel's talking about trying to lose his virginity, and then it would go into like weird like songs about having sex with snake women and eating their their dead bodies, and then it would go back into like you know things about having your penis cut off. This is the lamb lies down on Broadway. It threw me and it compelled me all at the same time and then i had to get into the rest of them and then so i've already already rambled on too long this is what i meant when i said this is my baby this is my band i went and bought all of their stuff and at this point collected like literally not only all of their official stuff but i mean everything that hasn't been released that's why i'm the guy releasing all of their bootlegs online i want to explain to you why genesis is my favorite band of all time all right. You know, for a long time, I told myself that I didn't like prog rock. It was kind of like I felt like, you know, it, it's the obvious and lame but unavoidable comparison. I was closeted, right? I was I was a guy who said that I don't like King Crimson and yes, and ELP. But then I just realized, well, you know, I'm listening to all this stuff. Well, I guess I really do love prog rock. I seem to be able to name every song on every album of every one of these people's discography. Um but Genesis I love more than anyone else because their mood compelled me in this Gabriel era and even afterwards, but particularly in the Pete years. They were more pastoral, dreamy, and English than any of the other prog rockers out there. And that works in their advantage because you, instead of like that faceless, airy-fairy mysticism, like, yes, like, you know, a season witch will call you from the depths of your disgrace. Like, what the hell does that mean? Rearranging <laughs> your liver to the solemn mental grace? no. Or, you know, you know, like the weird, like anonymous, devilish foreboding on King Crimson. Genesis are evocative in a kinkish sort of way of like that idealized England that that maybe never was even. And modern England or the days of yore, but the atmosphere is so effortless. And the other big thing, and this is so important for Genesis, was their instrumental prowess. And I mean that in a way that cuts both ways. They were not the best technically skilled prog rockers of all these people. 
you know, all these big major groups. And in fact, they were considered to be the runt of the litter back at the time. The funny thing is, is that uh, the two guys who really were top of the chops uh, were uh, Steve Hackett on guitar. He only joined a little bit later. And the other guy who joined at the same time is uh, none other than a man named Phil Collins, who people think of now as the guy who does Tarzan soundtracks and sings <laughs> about another day in paradise. But this guy could drum your face off. Best my favorite drummer of all time, in fact. Um, but the rest of them, they couldn't play nearly as well, maybe as maybe some of their contemporaries. You, know, Gabriel himself was just sort of like an impassable flautist. That's what he played on stage. Uh, but that was to their benefit because it never let them lose their souls. They couldn't. They could play well enough to be convincingly progressive, but not well enough. And I believe this is really important to lose their pop souls. They were never technically amazing outside of Hackett and Collins. So that means that they were never really in danger of taking off into that super complex, soulless, programmatic style that ELP and Yes lost themselves in. They were a prog band that never ceased being a pop group either. I guess the last reason is that they, they had a sense of humor, a sense of humor. And this is the one thing that I think changes forever at the end of this era that we'll talk about um, that ends when Peter Gabriel leaves. Peter Gabriel uh, is his solo career. I mean, someday I pray we will do a Peter Gabriel episode of political beats because I, I think his solo career is, is just about as, as amazing as what he has done with Genesis. Um, the only thing that Genesis really lost, though, when Pete left was that sense of humor, that wit, that sprightliness, that lyrical touch that only Pete was capable of bringing to them. He got more sober and mature and, you know, sort of almost like you can compare on a chart like the, as his voice got hoarser, his lyrical conceits got more mature. But here he was playful, weird, strange, maybe still a bit of the old British schoolboy within him. Um, but this music makes me laugh and it moves me. And the music moves me. I have basically now spent 10 minutes boring you. This is my favorite band of all time, uh, except we have to talk about that first album, which kind of sucks. I also want to mention, of course, they may have lost the lyrical touch of Peter Gabriel, but they gained an invisible touch. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) But a but a bing. All right. Listen, one last thing. And I'm talking so much. God. But just I, I always have to do the whole stage setting thing. Who are the people in this band? Who are these people? You know them. You've you've basically been encountering them in your pop lives, whether you knew it or not, or whether you liked it or not, for the past thirty years. All right. Tony Banks is the one guy who never had a big solo career, but is kind of in a lot of ways the backbone of Genesis, their keyboardist. Michael Rutherford, their bassist and acoustic guitarist. 
Um, Peter Gabriel, <laughs> believe it or not, what was his instrument in Genesis? It was flute. Yeah, he's more kind of a keyboardist in his heart, but of course Tony wouldn't let him touch the keyboard. <laughs> so uh, you've got that. And who are these guys? Well, they and another friend of theirs named Anthony Phillips, who was the original guitarist for Genesis, Ant Phillips, uh, all went to like a British private school, like a, like a very – it's basically like St. Albans in Washington, D.C. You know, Patrick, I don't know what the equivalent in Los Angeles is, like you know, like a really Tony prep school. Um, but they, they went to this place called Charterhouse in sort of the London suburbs, which is like where like all the best people, middle class people send their children. And then they were middle class kids just trying to play at art and making music. And uh, and what they did is uh, get to the attention of a guy who had been a couple years older than named Jonathan King, who had had like a hit single on the British charts, saying like, hey, hey, here's our demos. We're making this music. Hey, do you like us? And because, you know, they had that school connection. King noticed them and he got them a record contract, which is how they ended up releasing their first couple singles and their first album from Genesis to Revelation. And the thing about this is, man, if you're a super fan the way I am, I can find some things. In fact, uh, this is how pathetically super fan I am. I can find a lot of things to praise about it, but I can never in good conscience recommend it to anyone else. <laughs> You guys, please go first, and then I will actually try to highlight what what works here and what fails. Well, I I, I, I want to follow up on something that you were saying earlier about um, yeah, go for it. Sort of their their lack of super duper instrumental chops, uh, and and what I think is really at the heart of what kept them interesting all along is that they really were at heart songwriters more than performers right I mean, that, that's what they always say too they're, they're like this like their original album they wanted to write it for other people but nobody wanted to pour, to perform this silly music exactly <laughs> so they just had to do it themselves ocean of motion And so they start out with this first album sort of trying to write the kind of thing that is popular at the time, sort of Bee Gees style stuff. Um, but uh, you can kind of tell their heart isn't really in it. And it's when they get to uh, Trespass and they start to really branch out that uh, they get to the stuff that nobody else was going to play. But, but uh, yeah, on this, I think of this first album – uh, it kind of um, reminds me a little bit of uh, the transitions that you had with, uh, like, I don't know if you've ever heard the really early David Bowie stuff, 
uh, that he oh, was you mean the really, the really embarrassing, like Anthony Newley inspired 1967 David Bowie yeah. self-titled yeah. album? Yeah, like please, Mister Gravedigger, and... what made him a soldier? <laughs> yeah, a bombardier. Yeah, that's awful <laughs> stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you know, for for people who are big fans of David Bowie, it's interesting to listen to that stuff. Uh, for people who are big fans of Yes, uh, it's interesting to listen to their really early stuff where they're covering, you know, the Beatles and the birds and Simon and Garfunkel and stuff. But it, it seems like uh, when the seventies come along, like all these acts sort of get their act together. But what we're, but what we're talking about now for Genesis is sort of their sort of pre seventies, um, you know, sort of junior uh, period when they they really you can only hear just the little kernels of of what's to come. It needs to be it needs or, to be emphasized that this is an album they literally made when they were still in high school. Yeah, like fifteen to seventeen years old, I think. Right? I mean, yeah, something like seventeen. I think it was more like seventeen, eighteen. Right? They'd yeah. been doing demos for the past two years, and of course, right, right, right. If you listen to that fourth disc of the Genesis box set, the archives box set, you can hear like the first of all, the, the thing is there's there's no electric guitar yet, even. <laughs> they own an electric guitar, yeah. much less know how to play one. Um, but the songwriting is still there. Like they can write a good chord se- sequence. The first everything they recorded is a song called Patricia, which became in hiding on from Genesis to Revelation. That's a good chord sequence, right? Thus, you know, there's a song that their early demo is called, you know, She's a Model. Or she is beautiful, very beautiful. Look at her, because she's a model. And they, they turn it into the serpent, because, you know, like, you know, these beautiful women, they're like serpents in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, and, and But it, it's actually a fantastic little song. Vanity arrived with fame. How she loved to see her name. She is beautiful, very beautiful, look at her, and she's a model. out that the ridiculous thing about this album is his only the only schoolboy pretension you know it could explain how ridiculous the premise of from genesis to revelation <laughs> is it's the story of the entire friggin bible <laughs> yeah. from start to finish uh, in, in 13 songs and, and of course there's at least three of them that have nothing to do with that premise right but like yeah this is not exactly a, a fully baked pizza um Nevertheless, and it gets even worse, too, because they threw strings. Their producer, yeah. Jonathan King, put like strings and horns that were really inappropriate on top of these songs. Um, so many of them are actually compromised. One of the reasons 
Genesis, I think, wanted to release that box set, is that they gave you like the early demo versions and alternate versions that didn't have the um, you know strings and stuff on top of them, and they're much much better. Mm-hmm. There's a song called "In the Wilderness" that on the album it like it's like horrible left channel right channel separation. Uh, where there's like horns and the strings in the right and it's just so gauche and if you listen to the actual original version of it without it it's a damn fine pop song peter gabriel is just singing music all i hear is music guaranteed to please wonderful little track This is the sort of thing that, however good it was, was obviously not going to be their future. Scott, I know this is your favorite Genesis album. <laughs> if it were, it'd be a weird episode. Uh, no, and, and, and Patrick mentioned this. It's very hard to even pull through to trespass some 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 kernels of musicianship that, that appear on from Genesis to Revelation. They're, they're not doing things they want to do uh these songs are essentially you know, three three and a half minutes long um you know they're writing a a theme that they weren't necessarily chosen by by the band the, the producer suggested the the biblical theme to the album uh the, the orchestral uh, strings as, as jeff pointed out were added by the producer the band didn't want those uh, Peter Gabriel's voice is clearly nowhere near what it what it would be in, in a couple of years. It's very timid, um, and and heck, there's there's two there, uh, at least you know, there's a drummer that won't be there in a few years. And Jeff, correct me that they even broke up after this album, right? Before they sort of decided, let's try again with Trespass. Yeah, well, they kind of did, and they kind of didn't. And you know, by the way, you know, there's a great apocryphal story. I don't know if it's true, but I prefer to believe that it is. That you know, when they were recording this album, Peter Gabriel was constantly taking cold showers and puking in the bathroom between takes because he was just so nervous and terrified about singing on record. <laughs> which is you know, it's really funny when you think about how demonstrative Peter Gabriel has since become <laughs> as a performer. Like this this shy young kid just like you know literally spilling his guts into the toilet in terrifying like you know like fear of having to sing the conqueror. But you know what? I'm gonna tell you right now the conqueror that's a banger of a song man. That would have been a, just as good if it were on a you know nursery crime or foxtrot. And it's you know here on from Genesis to Revelation.
what happens, of course, is that they kind of break up. It's what happens because they graduated from school. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Did, did they graduated from high school. What are they going to do? You're going to go to college. Tony Banks went to college. Yeah. All right. You know, like some of the other guys went to school and they didn't know if they were going to carry on. It was Aunt Phillips, actually. It's kind of like one of these people who's, you know, because he left so early in the band, doesn't get the credit that he really deserves for shaping the early Genesis sound, who was really keen to carry on and really keen for them to like stay together. And what they ended up doing is, is doing this kind of thing that's almost become, if you understand, like British rock tradition, kind of a joke. Uh, which is getting it together in the country. You know, like they went to a cottage out, right. you know, in the farmlands <laughs> or in the woods, and they just gigged by the fireside on a winter's night. This Christmas <laughs> cottage is what it is. But, you know, it, 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 it it's a joke, but it's also so, so, so important for the history of Genesis because nothing else explains how this band turned from what they were into what they became. This is that I've I've used this line a hundred times. I'll use it again. It is one of the most magical caterpillar into a chrysalis, into a beautiful butterfly transformations that you'll ever hear. And and all the more so because there really isn't much evidence on tape to document this period. You you have the last thing you heard from them is is from Genesis Revelation. It's like your high school kids. It's like 17 year olds playing in their, you know, orchestra room. And then all of a sudden you get trespassed. what happened in between well what happened in between is them gigging endlessly and particularly mike rutherford and aunt phillips working together playing 12 string guitars um and playing them together to try to come up with like weird chord sounds and chord shapes mm-hmm. and just and also them just drawing on everything that they had read the, you know the joke about early genesis is that it is definitely like literate lyrics written by kids who haven't had a lot of life experience but have just written read a lot of books you know like they, they, they 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 definitely passed their classical education so you get the fountain of salmasis right it was like talking about hermaphroditus son of gods you know you get the musical box you get you know things like uh white mountain which is obviously repurposed tolkien kind of stuff you get that kind of an approach which i have to say to me is, I mean, maybe because I'm a nerd just like they were. It is so appealing. The musical approach is so appealing. And you end up with an album like Trespass, which is completely different from everything that had come before and uh, is a rebirth for the band. And, is, and, and they consider it to be their first real band of their career, their first real album of their career. 
Now, are you gonna? Is this a good place to talk about the the Genesis plays Jackson stuff that's on the yeah, box? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly where it is because you hear yeah. all these early themes that they were working with that they just <clears throat> set aside, and then when it had to suddenly write a double album later on, they brought back <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because uh, part of I mean part of why I think the the first album isn't that great is just because you know they hadn't really gotten together as a unit the way they did in the christmas cottage but part of it is the songs that they're writing and they clearly had some other material but it wasn't the Bee Gees type material and uh you know some of that comes out in those uh, uh those some of the demos from the box set uh like the, there's a there's a demo of dusk in there which ends up on trespass where you can kind of hear okay this is this is uh, a, a kernel of what's to come that was literally the song that gave them the courage to continue onwards they were still contemplating hmm. just breaking up and then they recorded that demo at Regent studio and specifically that song dusk and they thought okay well you know what we're actually doing something that other people don't do and, and it really is. It is a stand among all those demos. It it is a standout. But then when you get to the Genesis plays Jackson stuff and the, with these names, you know, like resignation and manipulation and frustration and provocation. But uh, uh, and you're the one who introduced me to this stuff. But uh, there's the, you're hearing the beginning of the musical box, uh, and you're hearing uh, you know the. You're hearing anyway from The Lamb Lies Down. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's pretty crazy. There's a lot of these sort of riffs that that it, it feels to me like are, are probably Tony Banks inspired in the, in those songs. Uh, a lot of keyboard stuff, and I think for me one of the themes uh, in going back and listening to all this stuff again is realizing, uh, and this might be a bit of a split between yourself and, and myself, uh, Jeff. But uh, to me, Tony Banks is the guy it's his music that i tend to gravitate towards Mm -hmm. and i think it i think it may be because the keyboard i believe the keyboards because i believe he had uh classical music training where the other guys kind of came from a little bit more of a a soul or or rock and kinks type background but uh i really gravitate towards the stuff that that he wrote and you hear uh, a lot of those riffs um in in those uh, Genesis plays Jackson songs and 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 uh, you hear 
uh, I think his influence in in Dusk too. So anyway, um, well, it's interesting. You have two key. You have two two big key influences here. You have two f- different forces. You have Banks and Gabriel who were best friends. Uh, right. You know, like you know, he'll play like all these keyboards. And Gabriel, uh, you know, he likes to compose on piano, but he he doesn't. He's not allowed to play. That's why he will dress right. up in, right. in, in in masks and kick a kick drum on stage <laughs> in yeah. frustration. Um, but he does lyrics. Uh, but then the other parallel pole is Aunt Phillips and Mike Rutherford. With and the 12 they, strings. Yeah. The 12 strings. They're literally just duetting with one another and like probably yeah. just sitting eye to eye after night after night, you know, beer after beer, <laughs> just like playing various <laughs> right. chords and figuring yeah. out what can work. And that's what leads you to Trespass. And the thing yeah. I love, Trespass is an album that is often treated as like, well, this is the be- the beginning of Real Genesis, their least album. I don't think it's their least album at all. I love this album. This album may actually make my top two at the end it is very different than the rest of the peter gabriel era genesis material but there's a unique feeling and a spirit to it that i love you can hear the fusion of all of these voices so well every single song more or less has you know it's like okay this is you can see that everyone's contributing like visions of angels that's an entirely that's an aunt phillips song mm-hmm. all right that's the one one that's completely his. And I actually think that's a fantastic song. Um, and then, but then on uh, the knife, that is clearly Tony Banks, Peter Gabriel. You know, stagnation, that's everybody just, just throwing out ideas into a pot, figuring out what works. Dusk, that's Rutherford and Phillips. You know, White Mountain looking for someone is clearly Gabriel brought the idea in, and then like you know, Banks added a lot of keyboards. It's one of those things where the longer time you spend with this band, the more you're able to see how all of the pieces work and fit together. And yeah, this is again, they're 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 not children anymore. This the sound of this it, it, from from the ending of A Place to Call My Own on from Genesis to Revelation to Peter Gabriel saying, looking for someone, sounding like, you know, you expect Peter Gabriel to sound, even mm-hmm. if you've only heard him from the 80s. Uh, you just realize that things have changed forever for this band. Looking for someone. I guess I'm doing that. Trying to find a memory in a dark room. Dirty man, you're looking like a Buddha, I know you well. Yeah, keep on a straight line. I don't believe I can. Trying to find a needle in a haystack, chilly wind, you're piercing like a dagger. It is such a sudden maturation, and I just think this album is wildly underrated. Yeah. I think it's excellent. I, I, I really do, and I was a little surprised by it because it's not one of the albums that you know I generally have heard about when listening to other Genesis fans talk or read about some of this early material, but uh, it's really very, very good. Um, you mentioned you know, Ant Phillips, who is such an uh, influence on... Rutherford with his 12-string. They play beautifully together in many sections 
of this album, especially on Stagnation, those 12-string guitars and composite chords they're playing together, the way they, uh, I think you guys said, over beer, eye-to-eye playing the 12-strings, they really became a force early on in the way those things were were put together. And and certainly, uh, Tony Banks is, 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 is... you know, right toward the front of of the sound in a lot of these places. Uh, Visions of Angels, which is a Phillips track, uh, largely as Jeff mentioned, uh, just a beautiful middle section there that Banks really drive with his organ touches and these big drum fills. Uh, speaking of drums, very quickly, John Mayhew is the drummer here on Trespass, and it's probably my my biggest. Uh, criticism of the album is that the, the drums are relatively weak, and I, I don't think it's... Yeah, they're a bit stiff. I feel bad saying it. You know? yeah, I don't it's think like... it's just in relation to, to Phil Collins coming next, who clearly is one of the best you know, drummers of his generation. I think just overall, they're they're weak and they're held back in places. I think it's, I think The Knife is a fantastic song, clearly. But I think Mayhew's drumming is holding it back a little bit from what it could be, and and perhaps later would be in more live settings with, with Collins behind the kit. Uh, looking for someone, that a cappella vocal entry for Gabriel Trick they'd use a couple of times starting the album. It's a great, great introduction to Trespass. These are now guys, you know, they're no longer students, they're 21 year old or so, but they're doing what they want to do. There's six songs on this album and five of them are, are at least six minutes and 45 seconds in length. They're spreading out and finding what they want to write, writing the songs they really wanted to two years ago, three years ago on From Genesis to Revelation and doing it here in a in a full album uh, version. I, I think Looking for Someone is a fantastic track. Uh, Visions, Visions of Angels that build up to that, that simple chorus, uh, Visions of Angels all around. Um, and The Knife, which I'm sure you guys will talk more about here in a minute, but that's, that's uh, nearly as hard as the band would get. Maybe up until uh, Lamb, which which, uh, which has some very harsh edges, but uh, the knife is just a very dark, uh, up tempo, heavy track, and especially towards the end when you have that, that that riffing on top of the drums and Banks filling in with his color on the organ, uh, and there's so much tension built up through the course of the knife that then gets released in that very last minute. When Gabriel lets loose on vocals, it's a, it's a great uh, demonstration of some of that push and pull tension being created and then released that I think they'd really uh, get close to mastering on Nursery Crime, the next album. But uh, as, a, as, a, as a newbie listening to Trespass for one of the first times, I, I would never say that this is one of the lesser albums of this Gabriel era. It's really quite good.
There's five songs that are largely acoustic based and uh, have you know, or piano based, right? Visions of Angels is uh, clearly a piano tune. I think Ann Phillips says that it was inspired kind of like by that Beatles with a little help from my friend style. And then at the end of the album, you have Peter Gabriel literally just screaming at you. Some of you are going to die. <laughs> Martyrs, of course, to the freedom that I shall provide. It's, it, it is a, literally a psychotic story of violent revolution, like blood in the streets. You know, they, they, we just did the doors not too long ago. There's blood on the streets. It's up to my ankles. That's the knife. All right. That's what, that's the vision of horrifying murder. I mean, there's like, there's a line where he says like, you know, I want you to like, you know, gather their heads and carry them to Trafalgar square, hang them high. Let the blood flow. Now, when I say the word, do it now. It's uh, just a wonderful sort of transport of imagination. I, I think Gabriel, I didn't even know this until I saw the interview that was on the Genesis box set uh, where he, he he said that like actually the original version of the knife was named the nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it was named after that early um, uh, Keith Emerson band, Davy O'Liss, Keith Emerson, uh, and uh, he, he sort of one of the progenitors of prog rock before ELP and King Crimson came into into vogue. And because it was like a really cool underground band back at the time, so they had a very keyboard heavy sound. Because if you have Keith Emerson in your band, you're going to be having a lot of keyboards. <laughs> That's just a rule. Um, and so that was Tony Banks's attempt to do an impression of that. And then Pete, you know, on top of Tony's just gave this psychotic psychotic lyric that actually you know they're one of the things that i've always loved about peter gabriel as a lyricist is that he does seem to walk that fine line between brilliant art and mental illness uh, <laughs> there are lyrics he comes up with that tread that line so carefully on a knife's but a bing edge where like you think about stuff on like the lamb lies down on broadway mm-hmm. or like you know or um Peter Gabriel three for that matter. Uh, he is in touch with his darkest side without ever actually losing his mind. And he's, he's obviously a fairly well-grounded person, but you first hear that on the knife. I'll give you the names of us who must kill all must the with their children, carry the heads to the palace of old, hang them high, let the blood flow now in the sunny world. And I think that uh, the way that that song ends out the album um, and kind of the contrast between the other songs and that one is reflected well in the album's cover, which is, you know, this sort of (laughs) gentle, you know, sort of pastoral scene. through. There's a king and a queen staring out of a castle window onto a nice blue, you know, horizon and then turn around the back cover. Yeah, and, and, but it's just like a, a, a giant slash across it with with this knife, um, and 
that's that's kind of what that song does with the album. But I agree, you know, uh, going back and listening to this, even as a Genesis fan who'd heard it many times before, it had been quite a while since I listened to this album. And it was really one of the joys of getting ready for the podcast to listen to it closely again. And I thought, wow, like I, I really had forgotten about this album. And it's, it's, uh, it, it is really underrated. Um, and uh, a lot of it is, it, it, it's, uh, I, it's a function, I think, of the fact that they'd been playing on the road, right? And so... Uh, they were actually they, a band at this point. They were yeah. playing live, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, even though the, the songwriting wasn't as <clears throat> collaborative as it would later be, um, uh, it, it was just, it was a little bit less of... Uh, of kind of an adventure for them just doing the recording because they're just coming into the studio and doing what they've been playing live. And so they all knew this is how the song goes and this is, and this is how we're going to play it. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, the drumming, it is uh, a little bit uh, on the weaker side. They'd kind of gone through a little bit of a spinal tap sort of episode with the drummers. <laughs> <laughs> three one. drummers. They had yeah. three separate drummers. Boom, boom, boom. Joins. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, I, my, my favorite song on this album is stagnation. Uh, I, I think it's really mm -hmm. the one that, that shows the, the, the collaborative writing at its best where you've got, uh, you know, the, the 12 string guitars, but then you've got, uh, everybody gets in on it. Um, yeah, I, I, mean I, I yeah, I completely agree, especially like the, the way, again, you know, you write the 12 strings, but then there's like Tony adds these weird kind of weird loopy loopy organ sounds. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, Pete is singing this completely inscrutable lyric that has never made a lick of sense to me. Right. But I love every single time it gets to that climax, man. I want to drink a water too. I love it. I love it so much. And, and I, I think, you know, for me, the, I, I like the knife, but uh, it's, it's a little bit more of that type of frenetic uh, Genesis song that that's not really my favorite style of, of song. I'm, I'm, I, I really uh, prefer the sort of contrasts and kind of melodious stuff in Stagnation to the harder edge of the knife, although it's interesting and I do like it. I just don't like it quite as much as Stagnation, which I just consider to be the masterpiece of the album. 
well, then maybe you are going to die as a mother, of course, <laughs> of the freedom that I'll provide. I have a question for you guys. What happens when um, the most important driving member of your band quits and he quits because he has stage fright of all things? Right. Yeah. And uh, you then decide that, well, you know what? Uh, instead of breaking up, which we might have done, we're going to carry on, but we're going to get a little two-for-one trade. We're going to get ourselves a new drummer as well, because that's what happens with Genesis. Anthony Phillips, who would have been a core member of this band, and in fact a lot of whose musical ideas would end up showing up on uh, the musical box and even the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway many years later. Um, he quits. He quits at a stage fright. He got sick. He got sick and tired, really. Psycho. I, I, I always, it, it's purely a, it was a psychosomatic thing. He, he just hated the gigging road. He hated that that entire grind, <clears throat> and he left. And and you know, as you listen to all of them, you listen to Pete and Tony and Mike say it's like we considered him to be kind of like our leader, mm-hmm. which is a strange thing to say now because you think of Genesis, you think of Peter Gabriel, you think <laughs> of Phil Collins, right? You don't think of Anthony Phillips, but he was the guy who drove them in the early days, and he quit. And they said, "Okay, we're gonna just do this because we only have one chance to do this. Let's just keep trying and see what happens." And these guys, this band, were the luckiest sons of bitches on the planet. Because what happened? Who did they find first as a drummer and then second as a guitarist? They found Phil Collins and Steve Hackett. These guys, and this is funny because these are the guys who joined the Genesis after their, their like your first two albums. Phil Collins is like literally my favorite drummer of all time. All right. Steve Hackett is my second favorite guitarist of all time. And I've heard a lot of drummers and a lot of guitarists. And I'm like, I'm willing to grant that there is a certain amount of bias because this is a band that I love, but I can argue for both of them. And it's just extraordinarily, almost incomprehensibly lucky that this band would pick up within the span of six months two of the most singular talents on their instruments to basically ever live during the rock era, which leads us to their, not their second, I guess I have to call it their third album. I never like to think of Genesis to Revelation as their first album, but the, it leads <laughs> to nursery crime. And this is Genesis as we know them, the five piece. From now on, this band would only shrink. It would not grow. <laughs> People will leave, but they will never rejoin. This is the beginning of high prog Genesis. This is where people's heads get severed with croaky mallets. Uh, <laughs> hermaphrodites get sucked into fountain springs and giant weeds take up angry alien life like a scene out of Day of the Triffids. Uh, this is nursery crime. Uh, what do you guys think of this one?
it's it's incredible. I mean, uh, the musical box is one of my favorite uh, Genesis songs. Period. And uh, again, you know, coming out of those uh, sessions where they had all those those little riffs, but um, it's just uh, especially for for somebody who comes from a classical music background, you know, and, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my, my favorite musician was Beethoven. <laughs> and uh, what, what I liked about him was the way that, that, that uh, you know, he'd write these long pieces of music and every single note just felt inevitable. And that's what, when you listen to the musical box, that's how you feel. You feel like, you know, it's it's a long piece, but every single the instrumentals, the the singing, everything just seems logical and inevitable, and without a bunch of repetition like you sometimes have in yeah. some of the other longer pieces, it just flows from one thing to the next, and it's it's. Uh, uh, it, it's there's so many different parts to it. That's yeah. the thing about it that shocks me. So there are, there are a couple other long epics on the album. Hogweed, some oh, yeah. they're good songs, really, really good yeah. songs. But <clears throat> they have a more kind of I don't know if you want to say conventional, you know, format. You have a verse, a chorus, a verse. There's a little middle section, whatever. The musical box is a sweet. It's more of a concerto. It is something, and I love the the comparison to classical music to the musical box because. It begins in one place and it ends in a entirely <laughs> different place. It starts with these things, and there's these repeating sections, but it keeps developing and developing and developing. And then all of a sudden, you have Peter Gabriel wearing a, an old man mask, like doing terrible things to a small child, saying, touch me, touch me, touch me, now, now, now. God, I, I don't even want to try to explain to people what the premise of this song is, because it's the most, <laughs> it's the most perverse damn thing in the world. Okay, oh, you know what? I'm going to just do you it. You should I, do it. Because I'm going to do it, because, you know, I'm going to do it for The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, too. My favorite yeah. section of that, I'm going to have to as well. But here, here's the song. Okay, so two, two, a young boy, young girl are playing uh, croquet, you know, the, 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 the little game with the mallets and the stakes where you, you, you try to hit the balls through the stakes. And instead of doing that, uh, the girl takes the mallet and uh, literally swings it at the boy's head and decapitates him, killing him. Yay. Uh, because, you know, she's just screwed up like that. That's the cover of the album, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But the boy's spirit then disappears into the musical box that the girl has. And for some reason, uh, 
don't ask me to ask Pete. I, I don't know why Peter Gabriel wanted this to be the case. He he then ages like, you know, 75 years overnight. <laughs> and then when the girl actually ends up playing the musical box uh, later, emerges from it to uh, as an angry old man rape her. Uh, there you go. That's it. That's the story. Uh, welcome to early Genesis. Well, I mean, is, there, is it really, is it rape or why is it rape? <laughs> <laughs> he just he, well, he, he, he's, he's, he asks. He says, "Why don't you touch me now?" Yeah, he's now, he's now, now. he's an old man. All is still like just feeling like basically this compressed lifetime of desire that's all spilling out. All, he was, all he ever wanted was for her to play him old King Cole. Okay. Well, okay, it might be not just that. Yeah, but, but, uh, but the, the thing is, it, it, you can joke about it, mm-hmm. but I have to actually give some credit to it. It's dark, so messed up, and as you pointed out, there is like a point. Like, imagine having all of your life compressed into like a box, yeah, and like and just suddenly being freed for a second, mm-hmm. and like all those desires come out. Like Gabriel, still young, but like he was tuning into some really weird, dark stuff that he, I think, uniquely alone among all of the progressive rock lyricists of that era, and and, and really most eras was capable of tuning into. I think Tom York sometimes gets at some of what what Gabriel does at, at times in a very, very different way with Radiohead. But like I'm impressed by that song, even as I'm disturbed by that song, and I've always loved art that kind of gives me, you know, <laughs> that raises the hackles on my neck, that, that, that kind of messes with my mind. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, or almost exactly, which is that the, the, the period uh, in the song beginning around like seven minutes and 45 seconds in something like that, where uh, it begins with the lyrics. She's a lady, right. Um, Where he's the old man, that entire section, almost every single time, especially when I watch the video um, just sends a chill down my spine. It's just, there's, there's something visceral about the effect that it, that it, has on me and uh i really want people to know you've, you've got to see this video um the version that there's different live versions on youtube i think if you type in musical box 1973 remastered uh it'll pop up and you'll see uh the old man head there i think it's it, it <laughs> might be it might be on the uh most recent box version of the yeah, box yeah, tag, i think it's from the rainbow, I don't it's from the rainbow theater show i believe from october 20th 1973 which is a very nerdy thing for me to say but i know yeah, yeah. um but you just you got to watch that and uh you know if you're not a genesis fan after watching that video then i don't know what to tell you
Scott, just go and just embrace the weird. Let me <laughs> let me handle perhaps two other songs. Uh, well, first, Jeff said this, but it's true. I don't know how much luck is involved, or maybe they were just really good at picking out the right guys from rehearsals. But Hackett and Collins were just the right guys for this band. Uh, you know, Hackett probably well, Collins too, uh, on a different kind of instrument, but Hackett's. You know, and the guitar is is really innovative and interesting with his parts, and it's a good fit for what he adds. Collins, of course, brings a light touch at times and and can sing. And we'd hear him do some dual vocals with with Gabriel and take the lead on a few songs, including one on on here for Absent Friends, his first lead vocal, uh, kind of a a slighter track on the album. But those guys fit in perfectly perfectly with what the band was trying to do uh two two songs i wanted to mention on nursery crime there's not a ton of course but uh return of giant hogweed again the weirdness <laughs> the oddness of it's the day of the triffids <laughs> for people who don't understand their 50s sci-fi uh <laughs> schlock this is a, a film about like you know uh, nuclear radiation hits the planet and all of a sudden like you know weeds become <laughs> sentient yes. and then they can sting people and like blind them with their horrible spines and uh, that's the return of the giant hogweed yes. this has, this has no friggin right to work but it works so well oh it's so hilarious but, but but it's a real thing though the giant hogweed you know Right. The, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a. Wait, 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 wait. Did it actually blind people with its terrible spines? I, I don't know that it has. That has mighty hogweed? Has mighty hogweed been avenged? <laughs> human bodies soon will know our anger. <laughs> the, oh, the, lyrics like they they all need the sun to photosensitize their venom. How does Peter Gabriel get away with singing that? All right, they're, or, they're, they're immune to all our yes. herbicidal, herbicidal battering. battering. Yep, that's they point. are invincible. Yeah. They are immune to all our herbicidal battering. How do you get away with singing that? You know what? You got to be Peter Gabriel, and you just have to have the balls to not care about like singing multisyllabic words about uh, sentient weeds that are strangling the human race. <laughs> it's just funny and stupid. It, it, this is the kind of thing, like, if you can get into that vibe, man, early Genesis is for you. Waste no time. They are approaching. Hurry now. We must protect ourselves and find some shelter. Strike by night. They are defenseless. They all need the sun to
and it helps that musically it's fantastic, right? Um, oh, St- Steve yeah. Hackett at the beginning, and I know Jeff has pointed this out on Twitter, the recent passing of Eddie Van Halen, being known for his tapping technique. Uh, he popularized it, but as Jeff is quick to point out, Hackett's the guy that essentially invented it, and you can hear it on the beginning of Return of Giant Hogweed, that tapping technique from, from Hackett. And I like Hogweed a lot because I feel like it's the first time they really get into a nice groove, that bump, bada bump, bada bump. I really enjoy that through through Hogweed. The lyrics are, are, are off the wall. Um, and uh, speaking of off the wall, Harold the Barrel is a, is a great song, uh, a duet, uh, you know, sung by both Pete and Phil, one of these one of these character stories from Genesis, in which in which Gabriel's you know voicing sixteen different people through the course of a song. Uh, Harold, the title character, is on a ledge, threatening to jump. All his friends come by, tell him not to. Where your friends come down and talk to us, Harry. Well, it's not just that, man. You know, like remember, you know, up on the, up on the ledge beside him, his mother his makes a last request and come off the ledge, dear. You know, if and your why? father were right. if your father were alive, he'd be very very, very, very upset. You know why you just can't jump? Because your shirt's, shirt's all dirty, dirty and there's a man here from the BBC. <laughs> that why makes me laugh every single time. It's just so British. Like, oh, that, that would be just so awkward for like, oh, the BBC cameras are going to watch you jump to your death. No, that's not done. And of course, what did Harold Bell do? He cut, he cut off all his toes and he served them all for tea. <clears throat> Harold the Barrel, by the way, I have to say, I think it actually, in a funny way, like there are so many great songs on this album. Musical Box is fantastic. Fountain of Solace is fantastic. I actually think this is my favorite song on it because what mm-hmm. I love is that it's the miniature version of Supper's Ready. You know, you take like a 25-minute long ultra prog <laughs> epic and you collapse that entire <laughs> son of a bitch into two and a half minutes. And then you just – you get sheer sensory overload. You're just being pelted like with like rocks. Like, you know, like Tony Banks and Peter Gabriel and Steve Hackett are just throwing rocks at you. You know, bonking off your head with all these different <laughs> musical ideas and the fast-moving lyric. But, man, once you finally absorb it, it is just wonderful. There's that small pause in the middle where Pete says, you know, if I was many miles from here, yeah. I'd be sailing on an open boat in the sea. Instead, I am on this window ledge with the whole world below. And then it goes back into wackiness. Up at the window. Look at the window. Jump, <laughs> jump, jump. It's just nuts. It's nuts, yeah. and that's what they, you know, I, you know, Patrick, you were right. I do love these frenetic Genesis mm-hmm. songs. I mm-hmm. love, I love just the, it's it's uh the, it's the garbage compactor. Like you, you, you can take a car and compress it into a cube. This is the cube of Genesis songs. Two minutes and forty five seconds. All of those ideas <laughs> into one piece. God, I love it. Instead, I'm on this window ledge with the whole world below. Up at the window, look at the window. We can help you. We can help you. Where are your friends? If you come on down, talk to a son. You must be joking. Take a running job. The crowd was getting strong. Swaying side to side 
Banks piano is fantastic. A jumpy, bouncy uh, piano through, and uh, the lyrics Jeff mentioned, yes, are my favorite. The the mother uh, and the reasons she does not want him to jump. Nothing, you know. I love you. Please don't know. Your dad would be upset if he were still here. Your shirt's dirty. The BBC's here. It's it's a great, <laughs> great little portion of the of the song. Yeah. Um... I just want to say, too, since you're highlighting uh, Steve Hackett and Phil Collins, how about how about that melody maker, huh? <laughs> Which one? Well, I, the, the, the publication, because that that's the publication that was responsible for oh, both of those yeah, guys yeah. joining the band. Well, I think Phil says that, like, you know, he'd always been looking in the back of the mag because the band that he was in, like, wasn't up to much. <laughs> and he always yeah. like, well, what is this crap band Genesis? They always seem to be playing gigs. Yeah. Who, are, who are these idiots? <laughs> he showed up to the to the audition, and and his joke is that he showed up an hour and a half early so we could see everyone else in front of him fail, right, right. and and learn how to do what it was they were doing, right. And then of course he killed it. And then he, is he like swimming in a pool or something? Yeah, he was just hanging out while they're all drumming out on the deck, <laughs> and he's just like you know slowly paying attention. And then meanwhile, it was a completely different story with Steve. Uh, with Hackett, they actually found him. He'd been placing ads, like asking for people to join him. He's like, I'm interested in a band or people who want to like do like interesting musical things with me. Peter Gabriel came over to his house, watched him play brought tony along next time and so like this guy i think he's the guy and um i really you know i can't say enough about steve hackett i i think he is as i said phil collins doesn't need a lot of like sort of doesn't need to be built up everyone knows who phil collins is maybe if you hate him you hate him but you still know who he is steve hackett is one of the greatest guitarists to ever wield the instrument and he was so perfect for genesis precisely because of his personality and he had such great technical excellence but he was also humble and he was so willing to just be the colorist to play in the background to Mm -hmm. to play a guitar solo to play strumming things to play things that you might only hear out of the corner of your ear and then when you pick them out you're like holy crap that's amazing that's steve hackett he's um one of the best guitarists on the planet and yet i know he has an ego because everyone has an ego but he was always and even in his solo work he's just willing to be working in service to whatever the music asks for and he's not the guy who needs the big solo spot he's not steve howe he's not eddie van halen he's steve hackett he's unique he's one of my favorite guitarists and and one of the uh, stories that i like that that uh illustrates his shyness is the reason that phil collins is the one who sings for absent friends um, is apparently it was a song that, that Steve Hackett had written, but he was too shy to present it to Peter Gabriel because he's the lead singer. And it's like, oh, here I am, this new guy. Should I really be presenting a song to the lead singer? And he sort of felt like, well, Phil is another new guy, so I can kind of take it to him. And then they worked on that song together. And that's basically why Phil Collins ends up singing that song on the album. Inside the archway the priest greets them with a courteous nod. He's close to God looking back at days of four instead of two. Years seem so few heads bent in prayer for friends not 
which by the way i think it's uh i really like that song i know it's not one of their big epics but it reminds me of sort of the beatles like sort of a she's leaving home kind of feel and i think it's a really nice little song um there are, a lot, there are a lot of little cameos in this album that are great. Like Harlequin, yeah. for example, yeah. it's just like okay, it's a little frou frou, right? You know, Harlequin, yeah. Harlequin, very medieval Renaissance. It, it's Renfest stuff, right? But I like it. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like that the, the, the it's again, it's very, it very clearly feels like it was something that was written with with Ant Phillips and Rutherford before Ant left the band. That dueling twelve string thing, which mm-hmm. Tony took over for Phillips. Um, but like, yeah, it's still a good song. Um, what? I think we should be emphasized, though, is that as good as Nursery Crime is, especially for our debut for Hackett and for Collins, is that uh, everything is going to change forever with their next album. Because this is when they basically just decide to, to, to go for it, to break the barriers, to just be as prog as they friggin' can possibly be. <laughs> uh, do you do that thing that all good, self-respecting, progressive rock bands must ever do, which is, that's right the sidelong song and of course genesis being who they are it wasn't even quite a sidelong song they have that hack at little horizons thing in front of it but of course we're talking about foxtrot and of course we're talking about supper's ready which is the conclusion of this album before we get to the conclusion of this album perhaps we should address the first half of this album maybe take it in its totality this is genesis sinking into what it was that they do and do best and uh, this is a lot of people's favorite Genesis album of all time. I don't know where you stand, Paterico. Yeah, I I think it's uh, probably going to be one of the two that I pick at the end. Uh, I, you know, if if for no other reason that it that it has suppers ready, but uh, the other songs are uh, fantastic and. Uh, I really like uh, Watcher of the Skies, the, the beginning to that song um, with the crazy chords, you know, and it's all Mellotron, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, and, and <laughs> I, th- I think there's a story that uh, Tony Banks tells about kind of, they, they had, I can't remember who the guy was, but there was a guy they briefly had as a producer and he plays the opening of that song for the guy and the guy says well let's not use that <laughs> and it's sort of like eh, we don't think we want this guy producing our records
thundercloud original yeah dark 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 thunderheads on the horizon where you see those clouds rolling in i live in chicago so like i see them rolling in off the lake or like down from north and they're black as hell and they're up north and i just know that like in 15 minutes i'm gonna be drenched here where i am (laughs) and and i hear every time i see that i hear those opening chords to watcher of the skies yeah. And then all of a sudden, the there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That rhythm, too. That Morse code rhythm. That rhythm sells it. It reminds me of, you know, Rush would do with YYZ some years later, where that is just such a driving portion of the song. Watch with the skies. It might be my favorite Genesis song of this era. I think it's just majestic from from the Mellotron start, which at least the uh, the story goes that that's one of King Crimson's Mellotrons that uh, Genesis bought off Robert yeah. Fripp when he was done with it. Listen, listen, I yield to very few people and my love for In the Court of the Crimson King, but man, Tony Banks used it better than any song on yeah. that album. And, and, and you mentioned the, the Morse code uh, uh, sort of uh, f- uh, feature of that of that rhythmic pattern i love at the toward the end of watcher the skies when it becomes this this call and response between the organ and the drums as if it is too because the song is like extraterrestrials who discover earth what like post mankind after, after is, we've, you know, right? we've all blown ourselves up and, right? and, and so i hear that at the end the organ and the drums going back and forth and like this it's like two beings talking to each other through this morse code sequence which is the rhythmic pattern of the song it's just totally incredible uh that, that rhythm section really comes to play uh of course uh, banks is open on the mellotron and then and then the keys and the organ throughout that midsection is just beautiful these giant drum fills that fills throwing in all over the place collins is just a joy on drums through Walter of the skies it's it's a magnificent way to start the album and as i said i i would i think it might be my favorite song of this like, Genesis I- era <laughs>
I like to I like to blow people's minds when they think of Phil Collins as like, oh yeah, well you know he's that guy who's saying like you know in the air tonight and Susan <laughs> Studio. And I'm like, I'm like okay, listen to this. This is the guy. This is the guy playing the drums. And like these giant chords come flaming in, and he's just oh, he's everywhere. He is everywhere. He's everywhere on this song. He's everywhere on the album, and and even he. Like we'll say, like sometimes, like I don't even understand how I played some of what I played on this record. <laughs> like <clears throat> the end of Supper's Ready, which we'll get to. Like he, he's like he jokes about with the apocalypse in nine eight section. He's just like I, I think I was just like high. I was just like I was stoned and I was just playing whatever felt right. And when I listen back to it now, I'm like not quite sure how I got the beat <laughs> that I got, which is amazing because it's like just so rhythmically perplexing and fantastic. Patrick, I'm sorry. I I, I know I'm talking over you. No, no, no. Um, uh, just one thing I wanted to point out about Watcher of the Skies is that you know that that opening. There are these dissonant chords but the but the way that you know it reminds me of some of the classical music that that i grew up listening to because it makes sense in context as you sort of flow from one chord to another so like you get like a chord like like that right which is on its own like what the hell is that you know but when when it when you put it in the flow that is a diminished chord is what that is i'm pretty sure yeah, it's it's there's actually like a I think a major these notes against each other, but when you put it in the flow where you have like like that, it, it kind of makes sense because it's sort of like these these notes are sort of passing and resolving to something else. I think that's sort of the 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 classical part of Tony Banks coming through, but I, it, I just it, love it, that. It's about composition. You're yeah. so correct because you're right. Each of those chords in isolation make no flippin' sense, right? Mm-hmm. But when you hear the sequence, do 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 do, and then it goes up to the to the clanks, do da ba ba ba, then it resolves. Then you understand why there's this 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 little long and lengthy surly growth up to it uh but that takes a mind that thinks in longer um you know in longer terms than simply the the chord of the second or like the the satisfying outcome you know banks goes for something that sounds ugly at first because he knows that the ugly will pay off with the beautiful and that actually is something that he'll do a hundred times with genesis he'll do it you know, all over the land lies down. I'll do it well into their, you know, their post Peter Gabriel career. The first time you really hear that is with that opening to Watcher of the Skies. Now, the, the question I have to ask is before we get to, oh, the big one. Oh, my <laughs> good Lord God, I don't even know how we're going to tackle it. Does anybody want to talk about some of these other songs that come in the middle? All of which are pretty good. Yeah. But, yeah. like, you know, like nobody really talks a lot about Can Utility and the Coastliners, even That's though I love song. it. I love that song. Or, you know, Get Him Out by Friday, which is, you know, Peter Gabriel's story of being evicted from his apartment with his <laughs> wife. And then he turned it into this thing where, like, it turns becomes a weird sci-fi thing where they're trying to shrink people yeah. uh, into to becoming four-foot in human. There's, there's, there's four-foot restriction on humanoid height. Hi, 
height, height. <laughs> yes, it, the people at Genetic Control are doing experiments oh so bold to uh, get these people down so they can shrink more people into apartment flats. Uh, and this is this is Gabriel's angry way at uh, you know fighting back about the fact that he was evicted. These songs are all great, and I yeah. really love them. And I don't think there's there's one song in here I think is weak. I think Timetable is one of the very few weak Genesis songs ever. And see, I'll okay, I'll stick up for Timetable because I think right. that what makes that's what makes this really a, a full complete album in my mind. Timetable <laughs> is this song that Tony Banks wrote and essentially brought it to the band in whole. Here it is, let's do it. And so they're essentially playing Banks's stuff. I, I think that's just a really gently elegant song. I love Banks' twinkling piano parts. Chorus always never sat well with me. I don't know. And and for me, it's a link, too, from Nursery Crime to what they're doing on Foxtrot. It sort of brings those two albums together. I think Timetable is a very good track. As old as they. I, I like it. It's, well, it's not bad. Is it fair to say, Patrick? Is it fair to say that you like "Supper's Ready" or uh, is this like <laughs> not one of your favorite songs? It obviously is, if not the top song, uh, it probably is. It probably is the top song. I mean, it's just the, it's unbelievable. I mean, let's explain for people who aren't super into prog rock how the the entire concept of a side long song works okay so you know there are people that if you're soft machine maybe you'll play one or can for that matter you'll play one groove for like 18 to 20 minutes and you know if you're can you can get away with it because you're that good um uh for other people however um most of these sidelong songs end up being weird Frankenstein's monsters <laughs> staple gun together. And this is, of course, also always my criticism, in fact, of Rush. During their early, like, hard prog days, I never liked 2112 because I thought it was just so sort of awkward Xanadu and all that stuff. You know, I, you know I've gone back and I've listened to a lot of this stuff a lot recently, and it's just, it just it doesn't do a thing for me. Um, uh, uh, we'll have to talk about that sometime. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you should go listen to our Rush episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Patrick, that 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 one, that's one that will deeply amuse you. But the mm-hmm. thing is, is that uh, I compare that to what I believe to be just the sort of brilliant subtlety of a song like "Supper's Ready," which, by the way, is not pretentious. It is pretentious in the sense that this is a song about basically the epic battle between good and evil, Christ and Satan. Uh, you know, like the uh, the, the Antichrist and. Uh, the in all sorts of other weird you know esoteric conceits and also it has a moment where peter gabriel dresses up like a flower and dips and hops <laughs> around the stage a flower 
You know, it talks about, you know, there's good and bad, there's mom and dad, and everyone's happy to be here. This is a song that travels around the world, and yet it manages to entertain your interest for every second that it exists, and then also reprise itself. That's yeah. what makes it sound like more like something like Close to the Edge or even Thick as a Brick to me than right. some of the more failed, in my opinion, you know, sidelong epics. This one I actually think is probably – if it isn't my favorite sidelong song of all time, it's like number one, number two, number three, something thereabouts. And this is a song that begins with uh, I guess some of the more moving lyrics that I have ever heard from yeah. a band where he just says, walking across the sitting room, I turn the television on, I'm, I'm looking at you and something happens. You know, I, I look into your eyes, you know, there's cars driving outside the window and I swear I saw your face change. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel quite right. And then all of a sudden it's like you realize, okay, we're going into some sort of dark spellcraft mystical place something is happening there's a possession it's like an exorcism and that's what this entire song is and uh it, it again yeah i i despair of like how many clips do you drop in how do you explain a song <laughs> that goes through seven different discrete phases uh every second of it is a joy to me and i could literally you know it's one of those things somebody had a twitter challenge once where they said you know put a gun to your head uh and you have to sing one song perfectly lyrically what would you do and of course people were saying like i'll do twinkle twinkle little star i'll do like you know baba black sheep and i was like i was like screw it i could do supper's ready man (laughs) i know every damn word of this song (laughs) yeah it's it the song inspires a a lot of loyalty and you know youtube comments tend to be uh really awful generally but uh, there's there's a there's a comment on one of the YouTube versions of the song that I think really encapsulates it, which is the guy says, I, I especially love the last 23 minutes of this song. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's where they really bring it home, you know, that climax in the yeah. last. Yeah, but it's it's you're right. It, uh, the the fact that they were and and a lot of these sections were brought in by different people but right. but it just fits together so well and it has such an inevitable uh flow to it that you know, even when somebody 
blows a whistle and you know like all change and then the music completely changes it still sounds inevitable like that's the way it has to go yeah you and just had you know, to feel your body melt you know mom to bum to bad to dad to the <laughs> office dad to the office Woo! Uh, I, literally I, I would spend this is again sad confession i'd spend so much time in the car driving home just like doing all of the weird goofy british voices <laughs> that yeah, does yeah. on that song and like congratulating myself that i could hit those high notes which is mm-hmm. you know one of these things that only you know 19 year olds who are are very nerdy do <laughs> god yeah it's strange but the other thing is that it, it just it has everything it's got the the beautiful pastoral you know music at the beginning that that comes back at the end it's got the sort of meditative uh passage with uh you know uh narcissus uh you know and then it goes straight from that into narcissus is turned into a flower flower. flower. and then all of a sudden he was like a flower yeah, yeah, and then and then and then, th- and then this, this is actually the part that Gabriel brought to the band. This uh-huh. is his song. Those ugly, ugliest freaking chords you can imagine. Bam, 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 bam. You go down to Willow Farm. That whole Willow Farm thing. That's a Peter Gabriel's like. You'd have thought that was because it's keyboard based. You'd have thought that was Tony Banks. The irony uh-huh. is that the Lovers Leap, the opening set, the walking across the sitting room. That's Tony Banks. Right. Coming closer with our eyes, a distance falls around our bodies. Out in the garden. The moon seems very bright Six saintly shrouded men Move across the lawn slowly The seventh walks in front With a cross held high in hand And it's Hey babe Your supper's waiting for you Hey my baby Don't you know I love Willow Farm is Peter Gabriel. Everyone's kind of working outside their comfort zones for this yeah. song and bringing yeah. the best. And you need and, both of those. You need both of those for it to be successful. I think Willow Farm, if I remember reading correctly, is the last piece that sort of fell into place for. Uh, for the song and it's right smack dab in the middle about 11 minutes or so and it's it's sort of that that break that little light-hearted break the silliness that's needed to sort of float this song through to 23 minutes in length but you need that opening part too because that lover's leap portion which comes back at the end and jeff's alluded to this but that's just the most beautiful melody of their career at, at least up to this point that you know hey babe your supper is waiting for you don't you know our love is true. That is that is a gorgeous, gorgeous melody paired with some of the most affecting lyrics of this entire era. And so, you know, again, listening to a lot of this for the first time, immediately, immediately drawn into this song and all 23 minutes worth, whatever it is, uh, because of how strong Lover's Leap is. And then when you go that long, you've got to pay it off. And bringing back that just beautiful melody... 
toward the end of the song is the ultimate payoff. It's just it's just a gorgeous piece of songwriting that, that Banks brought to the table, but you need Gabriel's sort of off-the-wall mentality and little farm for this whole thing to work, too. this song starts it starts with this sort of like this i think very compelling kind of like almost a demonic or a spiritual possession i saw your eyes change didn't seem quite right there's like you know the six saintly shrouded men who move across the lawn slowly <laughs> you know and all that stuff uh and it, by by the time we've traveled 24 minutes into the future you know there's an angel standing in the sun <laughs> and he's crying in a loud voice that this is the supper of the mighty ones. The Lord of Lord and King of Kings has returned to cha- bring his children home to the new Jerusalem. I mean, that is like the apocalypse. It's yeah. the apocalypse, but like the happy ending version of the apocalypse. <laughs> so like it goes all the way there. And then just like that that big guitar ending with Hackett. Oh, like, you know, he's playing the da 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 and the whole band is just like big wave goodbye. Like, yeah, you know what? We know we did it. We know we did it. We killed it. We killed it. We'll see you later. And it was just no accident that this became like their most beloved and most famous stage number. But you have to guess, you have to still respect the sort of that there. Peter Gabriel, as a lyricist, could do things. I guess had had balls, had guts to do things that no one else really wanted to try or maybe even had the competence to attempt. And like this is the first time he pulls it off, and then what he's going to do on the next album is actually, and the one after that, are going to up the ante in every respect. This is the moment, you know, I, I loved a lot of stuff on Trespass. I liked a lot of stuff on Mercery Crime. Um, but Peter Gabriel on Supper's Ready is the moment when I thought I was, yeah, I'm dealing with a guy who is literally a legitimately great lyricist. Yeah. 
And and it, you, I have to say too that the the portion that I, I think is one of the most impressive passages to me, and keep in mind, I'm not the guy who typically likes the frenetic uh, music, but that apocalypse in nine eight mm-hmm. and the buildup that they have is unbelievable. And it, it's a little bit like uh, to me like a fly on a windshield, which we'll get to with the lamb, where there's just this buildup of you know, it's like just a giant crescendo and a buildup of excitement. And you feel, you know, and then uh, uh, when they go into that, you know, they get the keyboard solo and then they go into the 666, you know, is no longer alone. And I guess in the live shows, he's wearing that Magog headdress or whatever. I mean, that that's just, again, that's a shiver down origami thing on his head right yeah, yeah. Yeah. and of course you know the joke is is that it, that bank says is like you know when they were like rehearsing the song before they recorded yeah. it and like you know they were like oh we have this really great jam and then he was like oh, well, oh shit, pete's singing all over my great part here <laughs> yeah he's ruining it with all, with the with the vocal but then they uh, but then the he really realizes like no that's exactly no it's genius. perfect Getting out the marrow in your backbone. Um, yeah. Listen, uh, the funny thing is, is that we've rhapsodized for a very long time already about these yeah. first few albums of Genesis' career, but uh, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> because I mean, at least if you're me, and if you're like me, and I and I know I am, uh, for one at least, like me. Um, this is one of the two, I would say, greatest rock and roll albums ever released. And I'm serious about that. That's not hyperbole. Um, Quadrophenia, if you listen to our Who episode, that's always been my number one favorite. Uh, but boy, it fights. It, it throws elbows and punches. It it gets involved in a battle of Epping Forest with Selling England by the Pound by Genesis. This is, to me, uh, this is a band that I, I love more than anything. I don't think they, they really ever really ran out of steam until the 90s. Um, but I'm going to just put my stake down right here and say this is one of the two greatest rock and roll albums ever released. I find it perfect. There are no flaws. There aren't anything I would tweak. I wouldn't take out a second of the play out of Dancing with the Moonlit Night. I want Phil Collins to sing more Fool Me to me every single time. I like the instrumental. I like hearing Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins talk about uh, British grocery stores at the end of Isle of Plenty. Nothing about this should be changed. 
um, this is an album that has probably meant more to me personally than um, well know, two or three in my entire life this is selling England by the pound I don't know if I can be as laudatory as, as Jeff is in selling England by the pound and praising it, but what I will say is something I said at the, at the beginning, which is all of these albums in this in this string are just so incredibly consistent. I find it very hard to try to draw lines about why one is in particular better than the other, and I guess I kind of find myself in that situation here with selling England by the pound. There are many things I like here. There are a couple things I think are a, a little lesser, but that's essentially the story with with all the albums in this in this string in, in the Gabriel era. This one I, I feel like the compositions are a little more theatrical. Certainly, there's that that the British theme that you see right in the title, British English themes, playfulness that was uh, that's been a kind of a hallmark of, of Genesis and some of these songs in the past few records. I, I think Collins likely has never sounded better than uh, he, he does here. I, I think Steve Hackett, uh, his guitar sound is a bit thicker in places here. I know he's talked about how he didn't really write a lot for this album, but he brought a lot to the album, meaning you know, he wasn't writing uh, the songs, the melodies, but the licks and the pieces he brought beca- became very important parts of a lot of these songs. And uh, I think Gabriel has, has said, you know, that this album is, is kind of a collection of, of journeys. He, he's talked uh, a few times about how he, his favorite songs that he's written are sort of these journeys that he brings the listener along with for, for this ride. And I think that's certainly the case through most of selling England by the pound. Uh, Jeff had, had poked at me earlier. You've never, you never heard I Know What I Like? No, I had never heard I Know What I Like until listening to Selling England by the Pound. That's a Steve Hackett song! It's a Hackett <laughs> song, and I know there, there are more, I know there are longer epics, I know there are probably more Genesis, Genesis songs here, but darned if it's not my favorite song here on the album. Gabriel, at some point, one of the interviews said he got somewhat tired of singing the chorus of "I Know What I Like" because it was so basic, and I'm, he's just he's just wrong. It, it's a, I think it's a fantastic uh, chorus. It, it, yes, it's 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 probably the poppiest song that they recorded to date. It was their first semi-hit single on the UK charts, but well deserved. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it's it's a Hackett riff that he brought uh, into the band. I think this was rejected once or twice, and then. Hackett it was Collins him and Phil, of, but basically yeah. sound checking it to death during like you know Foxtrot tours and 
you know, they finally worked it up into something. And then Tony was like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'll play some chords over this. And, and then it became their big hit single. And then it became played on every single tour afterwards, basically, yeah. except for the lamb. It's, it's a great, it's a great lyric set. Look, it's, it's a, you know, um, and, and I had emailed Jeff at some point this week. I just emailed him. It's one o'clock in time for lunch. Boom, de bum, de bum. Which is how the, the track starts. I, it makes me smile every time. This this song about a guy who is just happy doing what he does. And what he does is he's a he's a simple lawnmower. He's just a hey, lawnmower. You know what, you know, man. It's got me. I'm just a podcaster. You can tell me by the way I talk. All right? It's one o'clock in time for lunch. Bum de dum de dum. When the sun beats down and I lie on the bench, I can always hear them talk. You know, he won't conform. He won't listen to other people who are bringing in these job opportunities through the song. You got a you know, could have a, a future here or a future there, and he just wants to. He just wants to mow his lawn. That's that's all he wants. Uh, the sort of the, the hand percussion rhythms um, it jumps kind of from the, these melodies in the verse to that that wonderfully floating chorus. That again, I, Gabriel might not like singing it, but I think he does it very well, and it's just a incredibly hooky song. Look, there, there, there are longer songs on this album. I know people love the cinema show, and of course, we'll talk about more. But for, for my money, that's the best. That's just the best, most comfortable, most English moment on this record. It, it, it definitely, to me, sounds the most like the Phil Collins era, uh, where, you know, you have catchier, poppier songs that, uh, that just sort of grab you the first time you hear them. And uh, yeah, I, I like that song too. For, to me, by far, I think the best song on this album and one of my favorite Genesis songs of all time is uh, Firth of Fifth. Uh, it's, it's um, again, starts off as Tony Banks' uh, composition with that famous uh, piano opening yeah, and uh, yes. that's this you know, unbelievably hard to do. All right, Pat, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a challenge. Can you play that? Um, I'm, on not, the piano? I'm not going to try. <laughs> I, I mean, I, one of my I, most, know, most, I know that you can do it. Yeah. Right. I'm, one of my most beloved memories in college was like literally sitting with a disc man. Remember when you had a disc man that you yeah. couldn't, you, you couldn't use like a little, you know, a mouse bar to click and move backwards. You had to do like the little rewind thing painfully painfully working every single note <sighs> left hand dome 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 bomb ba dum ba bomb and then his right hand the, the, the and it, i learned a lot about yeah. playing piano literally from trying to parse out 
Firth of Fifth, just because the way that the left and the right hand interact with one another, you know, and there's that beautiful moment in the middle where it's a his left and his right are yeah, there you go. His Don't left and his, his left and the right, the left and the right are working so tight together, right? And so, like you know, I was just like, you know, these wide expanses on a piano keyboard. This is technical. Sorry to bore people, but like, <laughs> you know, like you know, if you start that song on a keyboard, you know, on your right, you're like way up in the high part, and then your left, you're playing on the bass notes, and then like in the middle, you're just like doing these these like sort of almost hand over hand moments. Um, it's just, uh, it is. I would say my single, I think the single greatest moment of piano music in popular music history. It, it, it's incredible, but then it doesn't stop there because no, because then Steve like, comes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got you've got this really uh, beautiful pastoral uh, flute tune, right? You know, um, uh, and you know, Pete uh, plays this, it, right? Yeah. So um, and then it evolves by the end of the song, and I love the the story of how this happened, where the, they say that. Uh, Steve Hackett was sort of as a joke one day, just, you know, doing the, the flute solo, this very nice little thing as this big, you know, guitar solo, right. Just to, just to kind of have a little fun. And, you know, I think it might've been Tony Banks who said, wait a second, that really works. And that's what turned into probably like the most famous uh, or one of the few real guitar solos that this guy who, as you pointed out before, normally would sort of decorate the songs but but you know it's just this balls out guitar solo it reminds you of the david gilmore solos from you know comfortably numb or something the, like the that perfect you know? sustain the yeah. endless sustain on those yeah. notes uh, that's actually technically very difficult to do yeah. and it was just yes it's like one long it, it, it almost it's it's an operatic soprano singing uh-huh. Is what it sounds like. It's God. It's yes. It's it's one of the highlights of their entire career.
so that's I just love that song. Um, and you know, in terms of the other songs, uh, more fool me. I think I love that little song, just like I love for absent friends. Um, I think Phil is really I, good on that. It's like, yeah. it's like it's like Phil sitting on a doorstep with Mike Rutherford with, with a guitar, and <laughs> they're just writing a love song. And of course, you know, it's just like what would become a pattern for Phil. It's like a really sad love song about heartbreak. He, he kind of had a knack for these things. Yeah, to, to me, the other standout on the album, and it's not uh, uh, really my favorite album the way it is yours, Jeff, but. Uh, the other standout to me is Cinema Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that is uh, just a, a, again, it's got the whole package. It's got the the beautiful, you know, twelve strings at the you know two or three of these things going at once at the beginning. And uh, I think uh, Rutherford said that when he was you know asked to try to play it on one of their later tours, he said, "Well, actually, can you really remember how I?" tune the guitars so i'm not sure i can reproduce that but uh and then it goes into the the uh the instrumental which Mm. they would you know really flesh out in the live shows but um uh yeah that that's a standout for me let me scott yeah yeah, let let me let me pop in with a couple of other thoughts and then turn it over to jeff to to make the case for this second greatest album uh, or so in in rock history uh on the piggybacking on, on the cinema show the back half of that song is probably my second favorite moment on the album when damn it you're not scott you're not allowed to pop in if you're gonna steal the thing Sorry. i'm gonna say uh, <laughs> you know banks has this massively long uh, solo uh, on cinema show which is which is just tasteful it's just it's just enough which is i think a lot of banks is playing it's just where it needs to be it's it allows you to savor the notes and the chord changes, and, and then you get to that final section. No, but when is, the bass pedals kick, yes, in, it, it's when, and yep. then all yep. of a sudden, it, it actually feels like you know. And I've I've been on these these red eye flights in the morning, above the clouds, and the sun is rising, and it's red, and like you feel like you're an angel flying above the heavens, and that is what the last part of cinema show feels like it, it, it's all that hollywood magic which of course is the joke it's, it's about a guy trying to score with a chick believe it or not <laughs> in the beginning of the song and then the, the cinema show the instrumental part at the end is is what they're going to see i guess on the big screen mm. but what you see on the big screen is some of the most magical music you have ever heard mm. in your life and i feel like i am sailing on the wings of angels when i hear that ending instrumental
you know, and, and that last section is just as much fills as Tony's two fills. Again, drums are just crazy, crazy good through that last syllabus show section. Uh, again, very quickly, um, from Dancing with the Moonlight King, I mentioned this to Jeff. Again, first time I'm hearing some of this stuff. Uh, I hear the first, what, 60 seconds or so of Dancing with the moon, uh, Moonlit Night, and I hear, paper late. I'm like, oh, because of paper course, late. I know hey, that song. Hey, hey, rest easy, Scott. No news is good news. <laughs> I know that song, and I always kind of like, what, what the, where the heck does that come from? It's a lyric in Dancing with the Moonlit Night that they were, I guess, a sound checking at one of their tours in the early 80s and, and then finished off a, a song about it. Yep. And the one thing I'll, I'll say before Jeff jumps in is um, uh, Battle of uh, Epping Forest, which is one of the long tracks on, on this record, is probably one of the reasons that it's not right at the top of my list of, of these Genesis albums of the year. Ah, I just, so um, no, I think the band's no, no. talked about this a bit too. It's really cramped when they write the music and then Gabriel comes back and tries to fit his lyrics into the music. I, I think it really is. The lyrics are really a tight fit in the meter, in, in the music, and uh, Banks said they overworked it. He said that a few times about some songs. They overworked it a bit. So I, I'm not a huge fan of that track, which is why I can't... Uh, I can't say the same things Jeff is about to say about selling England by the pound. Listen, I'm going to take up the stakes here for the Battle of Epping Forest. I initially, when I first heard it as well, thought the same thing that Scott thought in his ignorance. Uh, he thought that you know it's over cramped. Uh, now I kind of think it, it's close to my favorite song on the album. It's one of my two. Uh, Cinema Show, I think, is probably my other one. Um, the thing I love about it is that I think it is the height of Peter Gabriel's wit. Every single line practically is a pun it's a joke and not a stupid or corny pun but a funny one a funny image a funny line there's an entire middle section in 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 the breakdown of battle of epping forest steve hackett pointed this out like uh when they did the interviews for the box set he's like you know everybody else doesn't like this album as much as i do i think it's our best album um and he says i love that whole pete with the vicar thing where, you know, like, you know, you know, they called me the reverend when I left the church unscathed, you know, to save my steeple. I visited people for this. I had gone when I met little John and with his name came. I understood when the judge said you are a robbing hood. And, you know, he basically he's just like, you know, he, he's running around from house to house. He's a thug. And you know, he goes into one place and then you know, the reverend comes out and says, you know, Louise, is the reverend hard to please? You're telling me. Phil Collins screams in the background. <laughs> this stuff is hilarious. They're puns upon puns upon puns. It is extremely British. Okay, so like you have to be able to sort of get yourself into that vibe. But I love the joking around, and I love the complexity of the music. I, I agree. I actually have bootleg versions of this song where it's purely instrumental, where there there's no vocals on top of it. And so you can just hear what they're doing instrumentally. And you're right. It's great. You get little details that you don't get. But you know what you miss? You miss Pete's vocals. To save my steeple, I visited people. For this I had gone when I met little John. His name came. I understood when the judge said, You are a robbing hood. He told me of his strange foundation. Conceived inside of the word stop nation. He'd had to hide his reputation. Salvation from door to door But now, with a pin-up guru Every week, 
It was love, peace, and truth incorporated for long sick. He employed me as a column mechanic with overall charms. His hands were then fit to receive, receive arms. That's why we You miss Pete's lyrics, and I think the thing that I want to emphasize the most about selling England by the pound is that that Pete is you know is is written some fantastic lyrics in his entire life. I don't know if he ever quite hit the mark as well as he would during this era. Um, the Lamb Lies Down, of course, is a great example of that, but also a song like Dancing with the Moonlit Night. Where he literally opens by singing, you know, and, and he he was a little too on the nose about this in concert. He was like, oh, "I'm singing as the voice of Britain," you know, like you know, like an you know, old mother England or something like that. But just take the song as its own song, and you know, when he says, "Can you tell me where my country lies?" You know, and he, he talks about like you know, "Paper late," cried a voice from the crowd. Uh, we're, you know, we're all chewing through our wimpy dreams, digesting England by the pound, and. That lyric <clears throat> that goes through so many different cycles, again, this is a group composed piece. Hackett really brought a lot of the guitar stuff in the middle of it. Banks and Rutherford added that ending part, that the, the Disney part that they like to call. Um, this is one of those absolute triumphs of composition with Genesis. And it is the way the album opens and the way the album closes. Because after Cinema Show fades out, after you've seen all those angelic flights and uh, you've landed again, uh, what does Pete say at the end? He goes back to, to uh, Dancing with the Moonlit Night. He says, I don't belong here. Said old Tess from the crowd. And then for whatever reason, they just decided to go run through a name bunch of British grocery stores. <laughs> but, but it works. It works. And there's nothing on this album that doesn't work. Uh, this album... Uh, stirs me i guess that's the bluntest way i can put it it physically stirs me every time i hear it every song has a moment if not the its entirety that moves me makes me want to sing makes me want to move makes me want to think i uh i loved quadrophenia as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a, an awkward teenager, in a way that only awkward teenagers can love an album about awkward teenagers. Um, but I have loved selling England by the Pound since I was, say, 18 years old, and I'm 40 now, and my love for it has never dimmed, and I don't think it will ever dim. I think it is one of the finest records ever made, and I wouldn't remove a second from it, despite the fact that it's like 55 friggin' minutes long. It's a really long album, um, but I just, I just, I just hope people can call, can go hear it, and listen with fresh ears. Listen to to all these guys working at the height of their strengths, 
And uh, I guess I don't have anything more to say about that. So I'm going to throw a big grenade into Patrick's lap and ask him to introduce the last album of our show. <laughs> well, uh, the, the Land Lies Down is, uh, I mean, I actually am looking forward to hearing you describe the story uh he's but, gonna have uh, to do it himself. thoughts yeah i'm sure you do um <laughs> a lot of I, it involves penises it's just for some reason yeah I don't know why. I don't yeah know. i think uh, to me so it's it's a double album uh it was um recorded at uh headley grange this uh place that uh where zeppelin had recorded and mm-hmm. bad company had recorded and apparently Nobody had cleaned it up since those bands had been there, and there were a bunch of rats <laughs> crawling around, and um, sort of uh, uh, you know, Alistair Crowley, I think, had owned it, right? So it's a uh, uh, sort of a spooky place and appropriate to um, to the album, and I guess to me, um, it seems like it's uh, in some sense. I mean, to the extent that you can make sense of the story in some sense, it's sort of a, a, a story about, about uh, redemption, about uh, Christ in a way. Like I think Gabriel described it as being something like a pilgrim's progress uh, for, but, but involving, you know, a guy in a leather jacket, uh, a Puerto Rican in a leather jacket. But it, I'll let you talk about the story more to me. What is, uh, what makes it my favorite Genesis album uh, is the unity that uh, that they have the way that uh, like you just talked about how you know the uh, at the end of Selling England by the Pound they they bring back you know the beginning which is something they did with Supper's Ready there are a lot of callbacks uh, in The Lamb Lies Down and they have these ways of taking uh, uh, pieces in a lot of cases from the title track uh, right and massaging them and you know reworking them um and what we've said about supper's ready and the way that that it flows is incredibly true for this album especially you know to say that the the first uh, song the title track through say in the cage it all sounds like one song Hmm. um it just flows you know and they're completely different sections but the way they flow into each other and the, and uh, just the unity and the way that they rework these passages, you know, um, in songs like the carpet crawlers or Lily white Lilith uh, um, is what makes it special uh, for me. It's just a absolutely towering achievement. And, uh, and again, I give a lot of credit to Tony Banks for this because I feel like he is a driving force for, a lot of a lot of the music and you, yeah. you i'm sure you'll talk about uh <laughs> the sort of uh, collaboration they had in terms of the music versus the lyric writing and all that Fear. 
that's the funny thing is it, it does sound like they're so together as a band and yet ironically enough they could never have been more like uh fractured right i mean uh, the story behind it is you know one of those things that is is gone down in legend like they they present the idea for the album. They're like, what are we going to do for our next album? So, like, you know, Mike Rutherford wants to do a musical version of the old children's story, The Little Prince. I'm really glad that never happened. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Gabriel is like, well, <laughs> I have this idea. And it's it's the rail story. Uh, the land lies down. Uh, but then he insists. He's like, listen, you know, like books don't get all the lyrics for this album. You guys can do the music, and I'll, I'll work with you on the music too. But uh, I've got to do the lyrics, and that, of course, is a problem, you know, because you know both Mike and Tony at that point like to write lyrics. They don't write them as well as Peter does, frankly, but they still have their egos and they want to do that. And then, of course, in the middle of it, uh, William Friedkin, the film director, the guy who directed The Exorcist, uh, contacts Gabriel and says, "Hey, why don't you come to Hollywood and like." do concepts for me <laughs> and gabriel's like hey can we take a month off to do this and the band is like hell no we can't do that we're doing an album for you know for, for f's sake uh and then even worse then gabriel's first child is born and this is i think the thing that that kind of really to my mind at least i can't know for sure but i feel like this is the moment where <clears throat> yeah the the, the, the the things were gonna end um her, he, Gabriel's first, uh, her, his daughter was born, and she was critically ill when she was born. It, it didn't seem like she was even going to make it. Um, and, you know, Gabriel tells a story about how they wouldn't even let her, uh, let him and his wife touch her or hold her when she came out of the womb because they didn't want like them to bond with her because they didn't think she was going to make it. Uh, it's that bad. And uh, yet she did. She's alive and well. She thrived. She survived. Uh, the problem is that the band was completely unsympathetic to it. They're like, what are you doing at the ICU? Pete, get back here. We have to do more rehearsals for uh, the Grand Parade of Lifeless Packaging or whatever. <laughs> um, and they, at this point in their careers and their lives, regret this and understand how insensitive they were. They were a band on the make. They were deeply in debt. They wanted to make it. They thought this is the... You know, big thing. We got to do this. You come on. We 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 all have to keep our pedals to the metal. But you know, you've got to take a pause to respect the fact that, like, holy Christ, you know, this not only is it, it's your firstborn daughter, and she may not make it. And I think that was the point when Peter got a little bit alienated from the group. So they fractured, and yet they came back together, and they ended up with the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Now this is an album that you know you know Pat talk to me about like oh you can explain the plot for this well can can, any, can, can anyone explain the plot for this I, i'm not so sure that they can uh he actually mentioned some of the key points that i was going to make <coughs> pardon me you know the pilgrim's progress idea uh the fundamental thing you need to understand about the lamb lies down on broadway and i think the lyrics actually do hold up well the plotting works but it is a weird freudian jungian you know, psychodrama, <laughs> a, a trip into the darkest, nightmarish dreams of your entire life. Um, it's a story of contrition, of atonement, and redemption. It's both of those things. The redemption does not come without the atonement. You need to pay for your sins. Mm -hmm. 
you need to pay for the evil that you have done. There is no free ride. You're going to have to get your dick cut off and stolen <laughs> by a raven. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're going to have to get, you know, uh, you know, uh, sensually rubbed by lamias uh, and then turn into a testicle monster <laughs> and then uh, go to your Nazi-like doctor who slices off your wang. And then uh, you put it into a tube around your neck, and then a raven flies down from the sky, steals your tube, and before you can go back and capture it, uh, you find your brother who's, like, being drowned in the rapids, so you dive in to save him instead of going after your dong. And uh, in doing so, you redeem yourself. (laughs) Folks, disc two of this album is weird. I don't know what to say. beautiful album and in times i convince myself that it is one of their two greatest albums again i so i so do, i'm selling england by the pound is their best but uh, i for this episode boy it's either the lamb or it's trespass the, the the lyrical depths that peter gabriel goes through on this level had to have been influenced by the horrible things going on in his home life his horrible sad family life um, that thankfully turned out well in the end and also by like you know the the sort of strife that he was dealing with within the group and also by all whatever weird 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 demons he is driven by but man i am up for this i am up for colony of slipper men where literally <laughs> the the our hero is turned into a giant separating testicle monster because he gave in to his uh, foul sins and uh you know feral sexual desires and uh, yeah, and as I said earlier, he, is, he has to get his schlong chopped off in order to cure him atonement for this. But then there's that Tony Banks just like kind of invades the song and turns it into this great instrumental interlude where the suddenly a black crowd laven comes down from the sky. It's a supersized blackbird that sure can fly. And then bam, <laughs> there's this great instrumental thing that they would go back to over and over again throughout their career. Oh, God, I love the weirdest parts of the Lamb Lies Down.
lot of weird parts mostly on the second uh lp as as you mentioned and we've talked about the background and we've talked about the plot but uh, we can talk about the songs themselves because they're super strong the first lp the first disc of the lamb lies down on broadway is awfully close to perfect <laughs> um yep. side two especially i asked jeff I, I won't i won't put him on the spot here but i did ask him off the air if he, if he had to choose between no, I'll tell you what I chose I chose this if he had to choose between supper is ready uh essentially you know that that side there or the or the second uh side of the first LP of the lamb lies down on Broadway what do you pick and he did say uh, this this side two of the lamb and that is just an amazing string of songs from the the rough tough uh, back in New York City, uh, Hairless Heart, Counting Out Time, which is this this, this fun pop song. Uh, it's a Gabriel song uh, about uh, the, 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 the is reminiscing or seeing, again, his first sexual experience. And this time he's got the, the manual. I mean, the, literally the manual. He studied every line, every page in the book. He's found the hot spots. It's figures one through nine. And then all goes wrong and there's trouble in zone seven. It's uh, it's a song that that could have been a popular song. It's a it's a pop song, but then how with those lyrics? It's impossible. But this great driving beat, sunny chords, this very strange guitar solo from Hackett toward the end. What I wrote here is party guitar. Yeah. I said if the Muppets uh, had their own instruments, like a Muppet instrument, it would sound like that. That that kind of burpy, uh, as Jeff said, the farty sort of guitar solo from Hackett. It's just perfect in that song. <laughs> Oh, 
carpet crawlers, uh, chamber way, of 20, 32 you, doors. You, Go ahead. Scott, before you talk about that, I just have to add have to emphasize one of the reasons i love this side of the album well i love the lamb as a whole is the transitions mm-hmm. so okay that song is about our hero rail by the way a, a puerto rican in new york city which by the way peter Vabro actually like put on brown face this is never going to be acceptable in the modern <laughs> era but he got away with it in 1974 and 75 um you know um you know he's like a guy who's like you know just a street thug a street thug who just like, you know, suddenly he gets abducted into this world of his own psychological nightmares, basically reliving all of his mistakes in his past pilgrims progress. Um, it opens with back in NYC, back in New York city, um, which I think is my favorite song on this album. I think it's, it's, it's easy. It's funny. I, I, I have difficulty picking out my top five songs for the rest of this part of Genesis career. That one I know is going to be number one. Um, that's a song about him saying like i'm i'm you know i'm garbage i'm tough i'm a rapist you know i you know i don't care who i hurt i don't care who i do wrong and then there's this like little instrumental transition called hairless heart where you know you know he talks about like basically having himself shaved clean and then he goes from being the sexual bravado to like the fumbling dude who like literally you know is you know a one minute chump (laughs) and and cannot like you know keep it together and has no idea actually in the real world about how to please a woman or to handle anything like that but that's so subtle that uh, that journey from like you know him being the toughest baddest meanest person to him just you know basically just being revealed in all of his patheticness and sadness uh that's what I mean when I say Gabriel. It was absolutely right to demand to write all the lyrics on this album because he, when you can do that, you can work on those lines. You can set off these things. You can set up a, a point and early on, and then you know you can invert it and make it you know make the irony show through later on. I love the way that back in NYC goes into County Out of Time. Sorry. No, that 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 second side is great, and yet it still might not contain my favorite. Uh, portion of the album, which comes on the first side, Fly in a Windshield, directly into Broadway Melody of 1974, is probably my favorite moment of uh, the album. Fly in a Windshield starts with that that delicate strumming, the tension building, and then it pops as the guitar and the bass pedals and the heavy drums come in. Phil said it was his attempt to do John Bonham. Mm, That would work, or that would make sense. Um, yeah, tribute to him in his opinion. Yeah, yeah and the, that lyric, the fly waiting for the windshield on the freeway just before it all pops into that big, giant yeah. chord. It flows just absolutely naturally into Broadway Melody of 1974. This just killer, ominous guitar riff that carries through the track very early on in this story. We are not. We are not at ease and any stretch of the imagination and the strangeness is just beginning and it's just a perfect setup and i'm hovering like a fly waiting for the windshield on the freeway
have the limelight out on Broadway sort of sets up the entire uh, story and gives you these pictures of New York City, these images of New York City, and of course the melodies would return in various uh, points of the album. And then you go right into Fly the Windshield, Broadway Melody, 1974, which really gets us off kilter, off center for all these things that are going to follow. I love that twofer. Yeah, I, and I I completely agree. Uh, the the uh, crescendo that you get with Fly on a Windshield and uh, just the way that it builds. And uh, I think one interesting thing just sort of for the musicologist is that there's there's um, this this thing that Tony Banks does where he does these triads over like a, a, a bass chord or a, ba- a bass note that stays the same. So the, the part you're talking about, Scott, is sort of, you know, like... Uh, just triads over uh, a single bass chord and then it leads into that uh, the Broadway melody of 74 which has the the, the kind of throbbing uh, rhythm that comes back uh, kind of in and at the end of Lily White Lilith which also has those yeah, those the reprise it yeah. comes back yeah, to it it, it, comes play, back. it, it calls it back mm-hmm. by the way uh, Rutherford I think once mentioned that like the way they came up with that, it was like they had sort of a secret language, especially Banks, Gabriel, and Rutherford, because they'd been friends for like, since they were like, like 14 years old. Uh, like the way they, they came up with that Broadway melody, the fly on the windshield sound, is that just, you know, I think it was Rutherford, it says, let's, you know, Pharaoh's traveling down the Nile. On yeah. The <laughs> yeah. Go. And, 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 right. and, and go. Yeah. And there you go. And then, and then Banks, you like hit, as I said, those triads. It sounds like that, it sounds Egyptian. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, there's I don't know how or why it does. I don't know why I get the same vibe that they got from it, yeah. but I do. And there yeah. you go. And, and it's just yes, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. But what I want to emphasize about this album, my favorite Genesis song. When I said "Supper's Ready" is my favorite, that nah, was wrong. It's it's the Lamia. The Lamia is my favorite Genesis song. Period. I think that is the song that that everybody should run and play when this episode is over. It is. And they're going to be perfect. really, really, really messed up when they do, <laughs> you know, like, listen, you know, like, you, you know, smells like chocolate on my, what was it? The stink of something. It on is my the scent of uh, garlic on my on chocolate, my chocolate finger. fingers. Yeah. They're going to be messed <laughs> up. Thank yeah. you, Patrick. Each empty snake like body floats. Silence in empty boats. A sickly silence fills the room The bitter harvest of a dying bloom Looking for motion I know I will not find I stroke the curls now turning pale In which I lay Your flesh that remains I will take as my food It is the scent of garlic That lingers on my chocolate fingers It's so good, uh, though. You're right. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a beautiful piano melody and chord progression, but the lyrics are real poetry. I mean, honest to God, it's it's uh, and I think it uh, takes off from an actual. Uh, Keats poem called the Lamia, if I recall correctly, which has some of the same imagery, but uh, the, the, the lines in it, again, it's the, the type of music and poetry. And it's not just lyrics, it's poetry that really sends a shiver down your spine. When you listen to it, it's so beautiful. And uh, even though the, what's happening in the story as you have already described, is completely bizarre. It works just because the 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 way that he expresses it, and the and together with the keyboards, it's just magical. I mean, it really is uh, an unbelievable song. For me, this is an album that took me a very long time to sort of come into full appreciation of, and and that's why I know that that Scott is screwed. You know, like. <laughs> Because you know, he's only come to it fairly recently, uh, because it's one of those records where you have to be able to get yourself into a frame of mind where you're discomforted. It's kind of the reason why I, I think that Peter Gabriel Three uh, is one of my another one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, but that's like you know, as my friend joked, a great way to drive your fr- you know drive your dorm room mate out of the building. Uh, put Peter Gabriel three on, and they'll leave after they get past no self control. They're not going to be able to stand it. This is similarly messed up and weird because it goes to weird places, uncomfortable places. Um, <clears throat> but it does it in a way that I think stands up more and more over time. I, I the Lamia uh, and you know is it Lamia? I always said Lamia. I don't know. I don't know. And neither do I. Right. But that whole sequence from the Lamia to like Silent Sorrow and Empty Boats, Colony of Slipper Man, all the way down to the end, mm-hmm. um, it, it is deeply discomforting, weird music. It's where the spiritual message of the album I think comes most closely into focus. It's you know suffering, true suffering. You know has to be endured in order to to have proper atonement and repentance for sins. And then maybe, and only maybe then after you've proven that you're willing to sacrifice what you desire the most, you know, for a greater good, for someone else. He, you know, he can escape from this nightmare hell, but he decides instead to go after his brother. He pulls his body out of the water, and what does he see? The body is his. It's mine. And then all of a sudden, and it's it. The final song of the album, which is one of the, the very few songs that Genesis would play after Peter Gabriel left the band from this album. Uh, that that's, uh, uh, that's a message that still resonates with me. And it's esoteric, though. It, it's not easily accessible. You've got to really work for it. Like, you know, you've got to sit through, uh, you know, you know the, the, the songs that are pure instrumentals that are just there because Peter Gabriel has to get into yes. his testicle suit and get out of his testicle suit for the stage show, which is uh-huh. totally the way they structured some of the stuff on the second half of this album. But I have to say, like, The Lamb is, is the one Genesis album that has grown for me over the years. I always love Selling England. I always love Foxtrot, Trespass. Um, but the lamb is the one, even though it was the first one that I got, that uh, 
pushed me away initially and that the longer I listen to it, the more I, I, I come to believe that it is maybe one of their greatest records ever. At the top of the stairs, there's hundreds of people running around to all the doors. They try to find, find themselves an audience. Their deductions need applause. The rich man stands in front of me. Paul One of the uh, the things I think to listen for on this album is I, I kind of alluded to this before, but the way some of the melodies come back. So if you listen to uh, the title track, there are those lines, you know, though man made light. I'm not going to sing, but you, you can sing it, Jordan. <laughs> but though man, though man made light at night is very bright. You know that bit there, right? Um, when they do the carpet crawlers, uh, the line of salamander scurries into flame to be destroyed. It's the same thing, but it's different. It's like they've, they've transformed it into an an entirely different melody and built an entire haunting song really just around like a a kernel like that. Another place where they do something like that is uh, in the light lies down on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that uh, that bit at the beginning. And again, I'm not going to sing, but uh, where you know the, the, as he walks uh, along. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, right. no, 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 you know what? Anyway, you're going to be in tune if you play. You do. It's kind of like that, right? Right. That, that's that's basically. A recap of a middle Lamia. section of the well, Lamia, I guess it's pronounced. Yeah, but, right. And, uh, and then, of course, exactly. And not only that, but then it goes right back into you know the lamb, you know, and and, yeah. and, and the light, 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 right. 
Light, mm-hmm. light dies down. That was, by the way, the one song on the album that wasn't lyrically written by Peter Gabriel. Right, right. They had gaps, right? So, like, you know, they're like, oh, you know, crap, we gotta, we gotta fill this space with something. So, what do we do? So, that was the one where, like, Mike and Peter, like, you know, or Mike and Tony rather, like, wrote the lyrics for it. But it works. It works perfectly. And you're right. I think it was because that was written by them that uh, Tony was like, <laughs> you know what? I really love this Lamia melody. We're gonna bring it back. Wow. Mm-hmm. Alter, you know, everything is just—it's just—it it harkens back to the beginning, but it changes it too, and that's what I love about it. Let me uh, say two quick things, and maybe Jeff can wrap up uh, the yeah. lamb. And that's—you know—I I praise the first LP, the first disc, uh, very much, and and I stand by that. Of course, the second LP, I just think, is a slight bit weaker in in how it's sequenced a bit. It's a little more gotta dive into the weird Scott. you gotta dive into the weird maybe after you know a dozen more or more so listens uh but but two tracks toward the end i think are really good riding the scree is such a tour de force for tody banks on Uh keyboards man is that a great track it's it's Mm -hmm. what three minutes or so instrumental before gabriel's lyrics even begin and it's a short lyrical song but man tody banks is so good on writing the scree and jeff had mentioned it previously um, and that that's that is a really good song, and I, I I think one of the reasons they may have played it in the future is because it it kind of sounds like later Genesis. It, it, I, to me, it, it it has that feel, that very fast you know fast upfront drum pattern that would sort of take uh, take over in the what early eighties around eighty that, that album. Um, it, it 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 has that feel to it, and, and lyrically, it's all over the place. It's and, a rock song, not a prog song. Anymore. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely, and and. Uh, you know, figuring out what it is. There's so many, you know, there's so many different things in in that piece. Well, of it is. It's the jigsaw. It's purple haze. It right. never stays in one place, but it's always a passing phase. And by the way, uh, you know, Scott, if you think that it's pretentious, you've been taken for a ride. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. I mean, the last thing I want to say about this album, and and I, again, this is the one that that is the, the eternal grower, I think, in the Genesis canon. Uh, is that back in New York City uh, is a song that uh, the first time I heard it, I remember I was driving home across the Bay Bridge in Ocean City, Maryland, across the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and I was like nearly like so disturbed that I had to pull over to the other side of the road. It was so messed up. Um, 
now I listen to that song and I think it could be one of the five finest songs in the entire career of Genesis. And I don't just mean the Peter Gabriel era, I mean their entire career. Uh, the best lyrics that Peter Gabriel ever wrote, better than The Knife, better than The Musical Box, better than Supper's Ready, better than the entirety of Selling England by the Pound, you'll find them on Back in NYC, where he writes from the point of view of an absolute loser, uh, disaffected, underclass person, who who says at the end, you know, he makes no apologies for how how he's is he's, he's a bad person. He's nasty, and then he says to you, the listener, he says, "You're sitting in your comfort. You don't believe I'm real. You cannot buy protection from the way that I feel. You progressive hypocrites. You hand down your trash, but it was mine in the first place. So I burn it to ash." Mm-hmm. And the way he sings that. Oh God, that was how you knew that. Like, no matter what Gabriel decided to do with the rest of his career, and like, it doesn't really have to be explained here. But he leaves the band after this album. Uh, he was going to be all right. had such an observational sensibility he was so smart so sharp um you know and in, in his youth you know he the talent was maybe like you know one of those things that was still developing it wasn't fully harnessed but he was only going to get tougher and sharper from this point out where we come to well i guess through the tour for the lamb the band 
everyone was aware that Gabriel was going to leave. It was like five, five, five dates into the tour. Yeah. He tells them like, yeah, you know, I'm out. And they probably all predicted it anyway. And I think it was, uh, it might've been Banks in, in interview saying essentially, you know, when, when he left for a month to go work on that screenplay, uh, the rest of the band sort of said, hey, this could happen at any time, I guess. Peter Gabriel could leave us. We have to figure out what to do at that point. And uh, and Gabriel made it very clear to them during the course of the tour that that was his decision and he was going to leave the band. And so that was sort of hanging over those late, uh, especially the late tour dates um, on the Lamb Tour, which was uh, a, a large production, as you can imagine. It was a year-long tour, practically. Yeah. I mean, it went from, like, October of 74 to, like, April or May of 75. It went forever in a day. Because, again, they were, like, hugely in debt. They had to work off all of their debts. And so, like, Gabriel, again, these, these are British school kids, and they're all friends, and even though they have egos. So they try to handle it in a decent and, and rational way. He decided to finish out the tour with them left with no rancor they even kept his decision to leave like hidden until i think it was like june or july of that year mm-hmm. and uh and everybody just assumed that at that point well geez you know peter gabriel lead singer front man songwriter for genesis has left the band the band is over and yeah and that was right that was the end for genesis that that will be the end of, of part this, two is going to be a very short episode clearly yeah we have 15 minutes long <laughs> yeah, they, they, you know what basically it, it just all falls apart after peter gabriel leaves <laughs> Well, thankfully, we have more. Uh, I, I know before we get to talking about the albums and the songs uh, that Patrick wanted to spend some time, and, and perhaps Jeff would jump in here too. Sure. Uh, I don't have quite the insight on this that you guys do. Uh, about the long-lasting influence that these Gabriel years have had on other bands through the years, Patrick. Yeah, so, I mean, for one thing, I'm trying to think of another band that that has an entire band that's devoted to uh, doing covers of a particular, you know, five year section from their catalog. And that band can go around and make money <laughs> and, and pack houses touring. And I'm, I'm talking about uh, the musical the, box, the, the musical box, which, uh, I think at least a couple, if not all of them, uh, members of the actual band Genesis have gone to see uh, live. And I, if, if I recall correctly, Dude, I, I think they even lent Peter Gabriel lent them his costumes. Yeah, costumes and and old films of the concert so that they could replicate, uh, you know, what it what it actually uh, looked like, and uh, the dialogue and that kind of thing. And you know, they've got on their website, I think. Uh, a tagline. I, I haven't looked at it recently, but I think it's from Peter Gabriel saying that he took his kid to the show to, to show the kid what dad used to do, basically. <laughs> you know, and really, I've I don't know if you've ever seen them, uh, Jeff. I've, I've seen them several times. I've only and, seen them on video. I've never seen them live. Okay, but I mean, it really it, it it's like you're back in 1973. I mean, they are. You know, they just. They, they do everything the same way, and it sounds as close to the, the real thing as you, can ima- as you can imagine. And I'm just like, what other band could actually, you know, have a cover band make, make that kind of money? And, and uh, just, just doing their covers. And there's other bands that I think if you're a Genesis fan, you, you need to know. Um, and I honestly don't know to what extent um, 
Jeff, you're familiar with all of these. Like I, I, I can tell uh, you, I'm a big Marillion fan. Okay, so that's okay. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. yeah. So Marillion and, and another another band that uh, is sort of had a similar, uh, you know, like they had the Peter Gabriel sounding uh, lead singer for the first few albums, and then he left, and then it was like, oh, are they going to be able to get by without him? And then they've gone on to have a very successful career, but. Uh, you know those for me those albums with uh, with fish uh with uh Marillion, i mean if you're a genesis fan you've got to get those albums yeah. those are fantastic uh there's a lesser known band uh, called iq uh that that did some really good stuff um and two other ones that i want to mention uh i sent you i, I think you watched this uh uh video of kevin gilbert uh doing the yes. uh Back the in back the in New York City, yeah, amazing. Well, back in 1994, he and he's unfortunately passed, but uh, so you can't go see him live anymore. But back in 1994, when I was in Los Angeles, he and his band did at this uh, progressive uh, rock show the entire Lamb, and he did costumes like he dressed up as the Slipper Man and all that stuff. And uh, there's there's YouTube's of this online. You got to go find that stuff and then acquaint yourself with uh, Kevin Gilbert's own music. And I would highly recommend um, his his own concept album, which was released, I believe, after his death. It was sort of like a, a you know, project of love put together, you know, by by his uh, friends and a song called Image Maker. Um, find that one kevin gilbert image maker on youtube listen to that and uh if you're a fan of peter gabriel era genesis uh you want to be hearing that stuff and then one other band if i can mention a band called big big train um jeff have you ever heard them i have heard of them but i have okay. to admit i have not heard them okay you gotta you gotta go to youtube and type in just english electric part one and just start listening with the you know the on the first rebreather, if you're not hooked within the first minute, then your money back. I'm telling you, uh, I, I'm telling you, you'll like it. It would probably be uh, pretty surprising given the fact that I love Genesis this much. Yeah, it's it, it, it's and I played uh, English Electric Part One for my wife, who's not a big uh, prog rock person, but she thought that I was playing Peter Gabriel era Genesis, and I said. No, no, no! Look, it's big, big range. She's like, now nah, you're just trying to play a gag on me, you know? Like this, <laughs> so uh, it, it's great, great stuff, and very uh, kind of like your favorite uh, Genesis album. It's very British. The the, the lyrical themes, uh, everything about them is is very British, and it's genuine good music. And they're still making music today. So I just really want to highly recommend those, those bands to anybody who loves Genesis in particular from the area of Peter Gabriel. Okay. I'm going to say this very briefly is that one of the, the, the downsides of sounding as unique as a band as Genesis does is that <clears throat> there aren't a lot of people who can sound like you, whether it's because of the actual instrumental talent or it's the compositional approach. Um, there's not a lot of groups that are like, oh, well, you said Marillion definitely actually has a very kind of Genesis-like quality. Beyond that, um, Genesis's influence is uh, more in 
the way that other bands picked up from their ethos. Mm-hmm. So like Radiohead for me actually has always had a very Peter Gabriel-esque and almost Tony Banks-esque quality, which is funny because Banks is the pretentious one who doesn't write good lyrics. <laughs> um, and, you know, Tom York is a great lyricist who doesn't like his own voice. So uh, he finds sort of a middle ground in writing songs with melodies and chord constructions that are firm chord constructions that are very much inspired by that kind of progressive. It's not the showy kind of flashy solo influenced improvisational prog rock kind of thing. It's, it's, it, it, it's the place where prog meets art rock. And I'm, I'm one of these people who insists on drawing a distinction between these two categories. This is kind of where they meet especially at the end on the lamb. Um, but yeah. And of course, Gabriel himself and Genesis themselves were going to like go in very different directions in the future. And yet also kind of interweave and intersect. There was a time in the late eighties where they would literally trade off spots at number one on the top, the U S billboard charts, yeah. which is hilarious in like 1986, they're both there at number one, um, which I think they must have been deeply satisfied, both of them, about them, about this. Um, they're always going to intersect and yet interweave yet again. Um, one day again, we'll do a Peter Gabriel episode and we will talk about that divergent course. As for the, the path that Genesis took, we're obviously going to get into that uh, you know, in our next show. Uh, but for now, I guess it's, it's time to wrap it up. It is around that time where we have our three panelists give you the two albums you should own, the five songs you really must hear from our band, Genesis. The Peter Gabriel years here. Patrick Fry is with us. Find him at Paterico on Twitter. Patrick, we turn the floor over to you for your two albums and your five songs. All right. uh, Well, I'll start with the songs. Um, My favorite genesis song is is the the lamia i guess is the the pronunciation it's it's just gorgeous music married to real poetry you got to go hear that song um uh supper's ready is in the top uh five it's probably the real masterpiece it's got everything it just it all flows uh especially the last 23 minutes uh, and <laughs> the musical box for me is one of those like the, the, the Lamia, um, that, uh, it's a song that it just sends a, a shiver down your spine every time you hear it. And especially that bit about seven or eight minutes in, uh, and go find that video on, on YouTube, uh, with Peter Gabriel wearing the old man head. Uh, my fourth one would be Firth of Fifth. Uh, I think it's from the amazing and uh, for me impossible to play uh, piano uh, beginning to all the other sections and the, 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 the pretty flute part. And uh, then Steve Hackett taking it away uh, with the guitar solo. Uh, just amazing. Um, for the fifth one, I'm going to pick something offbeat. I mean, there's so many candidates uh, and, you know, it was hard for me to, you know, you know, how do you pick, you know, uh, get him out? Oh, Patrick, I knew, I knew you were going to go with Happy the Man, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with For Absent Friends. Oh. Um, I, I, 
I just think it's a, it's a different kind of song. It, uh, it reminds me of the Beatles. I love Phil singing. It's a simple little song, but I, I just love that song. And I think it's a little offbeat and, and, uh, and kind of different and neat. So uh, that's worth checking out. Uh, for the albums, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, hands down, best album, in my opinion. Uh, and then my, my second uh, pick would be Foxtrot. Uh, for uh, my album picks, uh, actually, it, it's, it's, a, it's a repeat. Uh, Foxtrot and The Lamb. Those are the two albums that, that I would choose to, uh, to give to someone who's entering into this era of Genesis. Uh, on the songs, well, uh, let's see. Uh, Supper is Ready is not on my list of songs because it, it's on Foxtrot. I told you to get that album, so I'm going to leave it off the list. So with that caveat, um, The Knife from early on, I think is really good off of Trespass. I put that on my list of five. Uh, Harold the Barrel, a very fun song. Um, is gonna well, you know what? I'm gonna leave that off. Sorry, I'm doing this on the fly. So, Watcher of the Skies is on the list. That might be my favorite Genesis song of this entire era. Love it. Uh, I know what I like. That's what I'm gonna put on this list. That's number three. Um, Fly in a Windshield and Broadway Melody of 1974, they are essentially a piece. I take them both as one song. They count as one song. They count Fair as enough. one song. And, and th- that, that gives me four already. The Knife and uh, Watch of the Skies, I Know What I Like, and Fly in a Windshield and Broadway Melody. And I really should pick another one from The Land. It's because... Ravine. It's, it's the <laughs> instrumental track Ravine, right? <laughs> I should pick something else from The Land because it's so good and that side two is fantastic. But, you know... Again, that's on the album list. So I'm just going to go back. Uh, uh, Giant Hogweed. It, it, it lyrically fun and and musically adventurous. I, I really love that groove they get in. So I'll I'll put Hogweed on my list of five, as well. Jeff, over to you. Uh, this is the moment where I, I hate the format of this damn show because <laughs> like, like listen, all all of the albums from this era are worth getting, including the live album. Uh, Okay, but yes, the top two. It, it, obviously, it's selling England by the pound. I think it's the greatest or second greatest album ever recorded. It's that big. It's that good. It's that perfect. There isn't a second of it I would ever remove. I, I, it moves me. It's profound. Uh, the second one, I think, and boy, you know, I'm gonna. It's tempting to go with the Lamb, but I think I'm gonna go with Trespass. They're uh, gonna informally their real debut as a band it's a very different much more pastoral quiet and dreamy kind of genesis until the psychopathic ending that the album has <laughs> uh but i really do think that it's great because it also gives you an exposure to anthony phillips who was an important part of the band and it's a, it's a view of who they were and and maybe an alternate version an alternate dimension of who they might have ended up if they had never met phil collins and steve hackett uh, which obviously we're all glad that they did. Top five songs. The first one I'll say is The Knife. Uh, and I'm going to actually specify that the one that you need to hear is the live version from the Genesis live album. We didn't cover it in, in the show. It was just too much to get to. Uh, it's a fantastic live album. I think it's one of the best prog live albums of all time. Single disc. It's really short. It's only 45 minutes long. It ends with The Knife. Uh, and this yeah. is the one that has Phil and Steve playing on it. And Steve literally just burning your face off with the guitar. <laughs> um, second song I'll name is Harold the Barrel. As I said, Take Supper's Ready, collapse it into two and a half minutes. You get Harold the Barrel 
I really am into a song about a guy who cuts his toes off and serves them all for tea. <laughs> Third song is Firth of Fifth. And the funny thing about it is that I think that it has a pronounced weakness, which is those lyrics. Tony wrote those lyrics. They ain't good. Uh, he wrote all of the music as well for that song. They're very good. Uh, this is basically he, he would do this thing throughout his, the band's career where he would come to them with these fully composed songs and just say, here, thunk just like you just plop it on the table so let's do this and they do it because it's tony and he's kind of like the backbone of the band but man this is the best one he ever did a firth of fifth that opening piano line is the best piano pure just acoustic piano music you'll ever hear on a rock album fourth song is cinema show and as i said before it's the instrumental half believe it or not of cinema show the, the first half is beautiful as well by the way but uh you know the, it's the instrumental it's just a trio and in fact it's kind of a vision of what the what, what genesis would eventually boil itself down to phil on drums mike on rhythm guitar and tony on keyboards that was that was who they were going to be and you, you get that first sight of that here in 1973. And then the last thing I'll name from The Lamb, uh, there's so many I could name, but I'm going to go with Back in New York City because, as I said, it's the best lyric that Peter Gabriel ever wrote for Genesis. And it's some of the best music, especially if you, like me, are the kind of guy who really likes to dance to 7-8 time, you are going <laughs> to love this song. You know, you, you can do your 11-8, you can do your 9-4. I'm a 7-8 guy, um, and... Uh, Back in New York City, uh, you will always, unless you are already keyed into it, you're going to miss that one last beat, uh, and it's going to throw you for a loop and frustrate you. But that's precisely why it feels so queasy and so compelling. It is one of the finest things that they ever did. And, uh, boy, I can't even believe that this is only the first half of this journey. have another half to go technically in years far more than half but you know how this goes we break things up uh that is the first part of the political beats look at genesis the peter gabriel years we thank our guest on this program patrick fry blogger since 2003 still committed to the forum find him there at patarico on twitter as well patrick thanks for joining us and for your musical accompaniment at times yeah thanks a lot this is a ton of fun uh, Jeff at Esoteric CD on Twitter. Now you've got to go run through all the Collins era. I, mean, I know you've 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 been neglecting that, uh, which is not true <laughs> if you've seen his Twitter feed. So <laughs> I literally, like, literally, I, I I take my child for a walk and I rattle off every single song on every single album in order just to prove that I can do it. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I'm very OCD. Uh, Genesis stuff on his Twitter feed at Esoteric CD. My name's Scott Bertram. Find me at Scott Bertram. Subscribe to our feed. Get those new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, NationalReview.com. Click on Podcasts. Listen, enjoy, share them with friends and enemies, and leave reviews for us, too. At Political underscore Beats on Twitter. Find us on Facebook as well. Search for Political Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. <laughs>